Hello? Hello? Uh, the games are about to begin. It's wonderful to be working in such an interesting industry that everybody wants to know about. Um, good evening and welcome to the Pan American Center's two-panel uh, event, exploring issues confronting and besetting the book business today. My name is Jerry Howard. I'm the chairman of the Events Committee of Penn, and just so you know that I'm not without sin, I'm also an editor in the trade department of W.W. Norton. Uh, the panels that are about to take place this evening together uh, constitute one of the most important events we feel that Penn will be sponsoring this year. Uh, the idea for a wide-reaching event uh, centering on contemporary publishing was first broached energetically by Betty Fussell, uh, the writer and biographer and uh, uh, secretary of Penn, uh, and this evening has deep roots uh, in the needs and concerns of the Penn membership. Uh, about a year ago, the membership received a questionnaire designed to gather information about the individual state of writers' uh, relationships with their <coughs> publishers and to glean a collective sense of whether the writer-publisher relations had uh, deteriorated or not in the recent past. Uh, what came back to the office when you put them all together were responses that reflected a genuinely alarming level uh, of anger, uh, angst, and exasperation on the part of writers who felt that they were being treated pretty shabbily and unprofessionally by publishers, and also who lacked, many of them, a grasp of publishing dynamics and economics. Uh, it particularly struck the editors uh, and agents on the subcommittee that was convened for this whole project that the lines of communication between writers and publishers had broken down very badly. Uh, the subcommittee was determined to address this problem, though, with an event that would not simply be a forum for complaint, but one that would be candid, informational, and to the extent possible, hopeful and realistically optimistic. Out of the numerous discussions that we had have evolved uh, this two-part, two-panel event. Uh, the first panel will explore just what has happened in the book business in the past decade or so and analyze the forces that make the various players in the great game of New York publishing behave the way they do. The panel will go on until 7.15 with the last 20 uh, minutes or so devoted to questions from the floor which will be written out on those index cards. There will then be a 45-minute break um, at which sandwiches and such uh, may be purchased. The second panel, So What Can We Do?, will begin at 8 p.m. sharp, we hope. Uh, it will, in effect, address the picture of the book business that emerges in panel one and explore ways in which publishers and writers can work together more fruitfully and harmoniously than they appear to be doing at present. Uh, there will also be a Q&A session at the end of that panel. Uh, I think we need to acknowledge uh, the sense of crisis that besets New York publishing at this particular moment in the wake of the demise of two respected literary imprints, uh, Atomy and the Pickering Field, uh, the drastic downsizing of the adult hardcover division of Harcourt Brace, and the prolonged and almost endless sojourn in corporate limbo of uh, William Morrow and Avon, which I gather has ended. Uh, there are many, many people um, publishing personnel uh, and writers alike who fear for their livelihoods 
and who wonder if they may not end up being uh, simply roadkill on the side of the information highway. Uh, you can read all about this in melancholy detail, if you wish, in last week's dispiriting article uh, by Rebecca Mead in New York Magazine. Uh, this is manifestly the backdrop of anxiety against which our panelists will engage in their discussions, which will be anything but abstract, for these people are all intimately involved in the life of the printed and bound word in this country. Uh, before I introduce the panelists, uh, though, I want to acknowledge the people who put in a tremendous amount of their own time on the phone and in meetings to get this important event off the ground. Luann Walter of Vintage, uh, Victoria Wilson of Alfred A. Knopf, Carol DeSanti of Dutton, who will introduce a second panel as well, uh, the literary agent Elaine Markson, and our tireless events coordinator of Penn, Pamela Pierce. Uh, now, as to our panelists, uh, moving from my far right, um, your far left, our moderator, Maureen Howard, is a vice president and, uh, mem uh, and uh, member of the executive board of Penn. She is the author of seven novels, including Bridgeport Bus, Before My Time, Expensive Habits, and most recently, Natural History, which was nominated for the Penn Faulkner Prize. Her memoir, Fact of Life, received uh, the 1980 National Book Critics uh, Circle Award. Um, Virginia Barber, coming uh, to my left, is a widely respected founder of the Virginia Barber Literary Agency, which has been in business since 1974, and whose clients include Peter Mail, Michael Chavin, Rosalyn Brown, Susan Fromberg Schaefer, Alice Monroe, and Ann River Sidden. Uh, uh, next on left is uh, Harold Evans. He's the president and publisher of Random House. He began his career in the newspaper business as editor of the London Sunday Times for 14 years and the London Times for one. He has been the editor-in-chief of Atlantic Monthly Press and the founding editor of the magazine Condé Nast Traveler. He's the author of eight books himself, including the memoir Good Times, Bad Times, published in the United States, I can't stop myself from noting, by Athenaeum. Um, Michael Jacobs um, is the executive vice president of the trade division of Simon & Schuster. He began his career at Book People on the West Coast in 1975. He then became a sales representative for Viking Penguin in 1982, where he eventually became president of Viking Penguin. Um, Philip Lopate is an essayist, critic, and novelist. His nonfiction books include Being with Children and two collections of essays, Bachelorhood and Against Joie de Vivre. <coughs> Theme of our panel. Uh, <laughs> he is also the author of the novel The Rug Merchant, and his latest book is a collection he edited, uh, The Art of the Personal Essay, published by uh, Anchor Books. And finally, Marion Wood is the executive editor of Henry Holt, where she has worked since 1972, possibly an unrivaled <laughs> length of time at one publishing house for an editor. Among the writers she has edited are Sue Grafton, Melvin Connor, T.H. Watkins, John Nichols, Rhoda Lerman, and Janet Turner Hospital. And uh, I turn the proceedings over to Maureen Howard. This is working, yes? Okay. 
Uh, well, I'm going to start by being um, an immoderate moderator. I think I'm just supposed to uh, stand back and, and let everybody um, carry on or come to blows or not. But I want to suggest some problems that I hope will come up during the discussion very, very briefly. And to say that we come together, uh, not to be preacherly, but we come together in need of each other, writers, editors, agents, publishers, or at least it has always been presumed that we share that nice word, some mutual goals having to do with reading, writing, information, which is not to be confused with knowledge, entertainment, perhaps betterment of our human condition, and money. Uh, there's no one in this audience who is naive enough to think that publishing is not about money. It was about money in the 15th century when the presses of Venice competed with each other for subscriptions to the hot translations of Aristotle, and about money when Benjamin Franklin understood that he was being exploited as a typesetter and moved out to become a printer publisher on his own. Those in the publishing community who feel aggrieved, disenfranchised, or just plain anxious know well that if there is a crisis in publishing at this moment, it is largely about money. In using the word crisis, I do not mean to introduce an inflated rhetoric, but things have come to a pass, a commercial pass. We are to proceed like ladies and gentlemen this afternoon, for wasn't publishing once considered a gentlemanly profession, at least within this century? And that was back a while ago uh, when publishers, many of them were independent, when they were family companies, many of the publishers that we honored. Now most publishers in this country are one arm of a large complex uh, in which product is dominant. Are there, I hope that we will get to discussing um, the bottom line matters of are the products of publishing to be viewed as fodder for <coughs> commercially more substantial enterprises? And are we uh, to also think of the products of publishing uh, as if they are to be given to those who are concerned with access to the media? Mm -hmm. uh, there are lots of over overlapping issues here. One, which I think the second panel will get into, so I won't go into it, though someone on this panel may want to, is the anxiety about where we are with technology right now. And as we discuss the scenario which has been made up for this evening, which I think is fairly amusing and which we'd like to, all of us like to broaden a bit, um, I, I think we should also think about the various forms of publishing, not get locked into just talking about um, New York and the conglomerates and so forth, but think about the small presses, the university presses, the uh, variety of publishing that is going on now in America and the energy behind it. Uh, and mainly, I think, one of the things that I suppose I would want to ask of any publisher these days is, do you have, do you feel that you have a responsibility to the literary community? And I do not mean high-low, I do not mean uh, anything divisive like that by saying literary community to the culture. We, 
there was a um, scenario made up for this evening, and many of the people on the panel um, are going to address themselves to it or depart from it or be <laughs> angry with it. Be very angry with it, I think, in one case I know. This is our imaginary writer. He's a white male novelist of a certain age with the somewhat unfortunate but allegorical name of Martin Midlist. <laughs> Midlist is a quality writer deeply devoted to the art of the novel with five books to his credit, an untenured position teaching creative writing at a college that isn't Harvard, but that isn't a communities college either. Since the early 70s, when he published his first novel, his career has had its ups and downs. The downs are of more recent vintage than the ups. His first novel, Body Parts, was a powerful anti-war drama with black comic overtones set in a VA hospital during the Vietnam War. It was very well reviewed and all over the place, went for a nice sum in 1974 dollars to paperback and was made into a reasonably bad movie that signaled the downward slide of John Voight's career. <laughs> Since then, Midlist has published four novels, each of them divergent in subject matter, the last being a novel of suburban adultery. Each of these subsequent novels has carried the line, author of body parts. A number of critics thought his last book stood favorably compared with John Updike's couples, unfortunately. They tended to be in places like Santa Barbara and Milwaukee. The New York Times did not review it. It did not go into paperback, and its formerly independent publisher was bought by a large media conglomerate there, there, where it was slimmed down to an imprint. The editor for his last book has left publishing entirely. He has, however, had the same agent for five of his books, and she usually returns his phone calls within 24 hours. <laughs> Midlist has just finished a new novel, and he is about to send it off to his agent. The variable nature of truth fascinates him, and the book, and the book hews very closely to the facts of a case of his, on his own campus where a young woman the white daughter of a conservative southern senator, has accused a black athlete, a potential Rhodes Scholar, of date rape. The case received national attention. He has both of these students in class at separate times, and he wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times about it. He doesn't hold grudges. The novel is from the point of view of a college professor, and it intentionally blurs the line between fiction and reportage. On some days, Martin Midlist worries that he may be trashing his talent. On others, he worries that he may not be trashing it enough. <laughs> that is our case, which I give to the panel. And first, we will have Philip Lopate, um, splendid writer. Go ahead, Philip. Go at it. Well, I... I uh I feel almost uh, dumbstruck uh, having to be uh, the representative of uh, writers, uh, a task that uh, I can't possibly uh, fulfill, much less fulfill uh, the role-playing task uh, of pretending to be uh, Martin or Milton Midlist or whatever his name is. Um, because um, actually in some ways I don't have complete sympathy for Mr. Midlist. Um, I think that if he wants to uh, to grab at the golden ring, uh, you know, go to it. But um, he 
he seems to be all over the place in terms of his publishing record. And uh, he seems now to want a so-called breakthrough novel. Uh, and I understand, really do understand the pain of being a mid-list writer and uh, having published a few books and not being sure that your next book will be published by a commercial house because your last books didn't earn out. Uh, however, uh, I don't think that when a writer signs a contract for his first novel, he, he is given a guarantee to be published to the end of his days. Uh, it would be nice if that were the case, uh, but it's not even happening with uh, Japanese civil servants or um, uh, corporate office workers these days. There is no such thing as a, a, a lifelong contract. And so uh, I think that writers have to write their best at the, at the, at the, the top of their integrity. And, um, and if their work uh, becomes rejected by commercial houses, then uh, maybe they uh, should send it to non-commercial houses. Uh, but I, I, I tend to think of some of the, the hysteria around the crisis in publishing as, as a little ahistorical. To me, it looks like um, the, uh, the contractions and expansions of late capitalism. And it looks like part of a global phenomenon. Uh, I think in the 80s, uh, there was a lot of expansion. There were a lot of so-called boutique houses. Uh, I was published by one of them, Poseidon Press. and. Uh, a lot of them have bitten the dust. Uh, and I think that uh, there will continue to be those kinds of uh, contractions. And then I think uh, there'll be uh, new houses starting up. I don't think that this is, uh, this is as catastrophic as it's been meant to be. Uh, I also think that in the 80s, uh, a lot of uh, serious midlist writers looked longingly and angrily at the huge advances that were earned by uh, more popular writers. I think if you write a, a quiet, serious, relatively uncommercial book, uh, you're a fool to expect to be paid like Mario Puzo or Daniel Steele. Uh, there's no reason to, uh, to expect that to happen. Uh, so I think that, that authors um, uh, ought to be realistic. And, um, and now having uh, 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 failed so completely to uh, speak uh, for my writers, I'll go on and say that I don't think this is actually a great period for literature. That is, I think that in some ways, uh, um, writers are not writing terrifically great <coughs> books. Uh, so, so we shouldn't all think about how the publishing industry is letting us down, uh, but also maybe how we're letting uh, um, uh, history or posterity down. Uh, now, perhaps one of the reasons we're, writing it down, we're, we're letting it down is that there's been a kind of uh, evaporation of critical apparatus. That is, uh, there no longer uh, are those wonderful voices of, let's say, the 1950s uh, writing uh, uh, critical prose and keeping uh, authors honest. In fact, when an author like uh, Martin Midlist comes out with a book, it's very doubtful that any of his reviewers, uh, the 10 to 25 reviewers who actually do review it, will make any serious connections with any of his other books. Uh, so there is a critical vacuum out there. Uh, and uh, there's also a certain emphasis, uh, as we see from Martin Midler's uh, desire to cash in on, uh, on a uh, front page news story, uh, there is a certain pressure uh, for uh, books to be um, 
linked to uh, topical, sensationalistic things. Uh, the the Midlist novelist always knows that um, if he wants to attempt a breakthrough, he can write a novel about a murder. Uh, there's always that. Uh, or in this case, about, a, about sexual harassment. Uh, so there, there, there are those possibilities. And I do think that my own, my own, what distresses me about the publishing scene now is the proliferation of, of non-books, of books that really aren't quite books, that are really magazine articles that are expanded, you know, uh, and you read them and you feel like you're reading basically what you already knew from the newspaper or from magazines. Uh, and yet I feel ambivalent about that as well because I think that this is where we came in with, with Defoe and Marl Flanders uh, and Roxana. That is, uh, the English novel started uh, as a um, hybrid between journalism and fiction and tapping into um, the energies of journalism and promising uh, topical news. So, so I think some of, that, some of that is understandable. In short, I'm completely muddled in my uh, position. <laughs> so it's wonderful. So let's, let somebody else take over. Very good. <coughs> Virginia Barber, who's a literary agent. Well, we've had so many mournful articles and mournful events lately that I do think we should underline tonight the good news, and that is that Morrow and Avon are going to remain independent, that is, Hearst is going to keep them alive <coughs> and is going to rejuvenate them, and the word is going out that they're hiring, they're going to build the company back up. Now, for us, from where I sit, that is excellent yeah, yeah, yeah. news. And you can imagine that we've all been calling and suggesting the names of some of the editors and publishers who are on the streets, suggesting how valuable they would be to this company if they would now hire them. So even Martin Midlist has a new place to go. Now, I have a lot of sympathy with Martin because, you see, he and I began together back in 1974. But I've got to tell you that I think he's really misnamed because it was that movie that skewed his career right in the beginning, John Voight starring in his movie. Um, the publisher of the hardcover did a 7,500 copy first printing. The reviews were excellent, and they came out bunched enough, together enough, so that the publisher was able to order a second printing of 1,500, all of which were returned, except for about 350 copies, the sell-through. That's that famous second printing that all comes back to the publishing house. However, the paperback story was quite different. They set out in their paperback, and they published it. They didn't do very well. And then the movie came out, and they decided to do a tie-in edition, and they put John Voight on the cover of their paperback. And that book sold prodigiously well. It even hit the bestseller list for a brief week. Now, Martin was a little unnerved, because he thought that his book should have sold on the basis of the quality of the writing and of the reviews and not because of John Voight's face being on his bestseller. But he and I together, being on the cover of his book, he and I comforted one another by saying, really, it's about readership. And what happened was they bought the book, they took it home, and they read it. And when your second novel comes out, we will have much larger readership. That didn't happen. It was that second novel that really, that really had trouble, particularly with the paperback. The hardcover held its own, but the paperback did not. I have lived this story. I know this story. I've lived it more than once. This is what happened. That second novel, which I'd gotten quite a bit of money for on the basis of the first book, 
That was the novel that began our trouble. Was it that money? Was it all of our expectations? I can't tell you, but this is a real story. This happens. This happens out there a lot. So then Martin has to come back. He has to gather himself together and remember what he is about as a writer. Now, I think when, when uh, Jerry wrote this scenario and he came to the end of it, that is the fifth novel with the publisher having been absorbed uh, and the editor having left publishing altogether, I think Jerry was ready for me to say that I'm struck out. I, I'm, it's over for Martin. But unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at it, I am not dead and gone on this book because Martin has given me what publishers call a handle. I'm sorry, but this is again a reality. Martin's book can be sold because its subject deals with an issue that the public is interested in right now. And although Michael Jacobs and I have already talked about the libel and invasion of privacy problems with this case that he's dealing with, we're going to try to make use of this. If you read the wonderful two-part article that is wonderful in what it revealed about the business and this and that, in the New York Times book review about Mark Richard, you will realize that one of the ways Nan Talese got Fish Boy, the kind of attention that I'm going to get help get from Martin Midless, is that she publicized something extra literary. Now, she publicized his life. If you, if you read that article, his biography was so interesting that they were able to get off-the-book-page articles about Mark Richard. I can do that with Martin Midless, too, and he will be saved once again. The author that I can't save is the author who's published four or five books and whose sales have sunk to 4,820 in hardcover. There's no paperback. There's no, no subsidiary right whatsoever. I have to add, and oh, it's actually more like 10 books, and we've been to about four different, five different publishers. I have to ask myself if the author and I are two of the 4,820 people in this country who really believe that he's a superb writer, because I believe it. So do those reviewers. Or if there is something wrong with the way literary fiction is published. I really don't know the answer to that, but I know that there are both perils and virtues in trying to publicize something extra literary about the book, that is, something outside the book itself. You may well win readers, but you may well build a trap for the author. So I, I think, though, that one of the things that has changed about publishing that we don't often talk about is that the center of creativity right now seems to need to be in promotion, marketing, advertising. That unless we can, because we're so televised and movie-rised, it's very hard to make a noise for a new book, to get the word out there that there is this wonderful new novelist there or this third wonderful novel. So the, the people who create innovative advertising campaigns, particularly ones based on the book itself, are the people that you want your author to publish with. Um, there are many other changes. That was one of the things we were going to talk about. Yeah. But maybe we can come back to that. But Martin, um, Martin and I have to be very careful about what he does in his next book. And authors like Martin don't like to be told what they have to write. They want to write what they need to write, what comes to them. And I think that that's my job, to try to sell him as best I can. If I can't go to a commercial house, I will try a smaller house. And I just want to end by saying that I do not believe the Rebecca Mead article. In my experience, literary fiction has not suffered 
in this downwards, in this, in this different time in publishing. I'm talking about good literary fiction. I think editors are as hungry for that as they ever were, and that publishers are, are as ready to publish as they ever were. Where we get into trouble is the perils of the track record, and if the track record is not good, then we do have problems. We now, um, Marion, <coughs> it's your turn. Marion Wood, who's an editor at Henry Ho, with the uh, career in one place. <laughs> well, I, um, I uh, would be more interested in hearing from Ginger about that 3,280-copy author than about 5, this one. 5,820? <laughs> no, 3,282 <laughs> copies, whatever, yeah. Um, then about Mr. Midlist, who I call Mr. Mainchild. Um, I have to say that this is a bad uh, scenario for me because, and not necessarily for the industry, because there's just too much about what Midlist is and comes out of to tell me that I heard some passion in your voice about that 3,000 copy writer. I don't hear any passion in your voice about Martin and I don't feel any passion personally. So it's very hard for me uh, to pick this up and say, oh, I can put a spin on this, and you know, we can get him out on the road, and let's get a picture of him. Let's get him on video, and let's see what his legs look like. Because um, I don't personally like publishing fiction that way, and I only publish fiction because I love it, because it's too <coughs> painful. It is just too goddamn painful to publish it for the main chance. There is no main chance most of the time. I also have, as you may have noticed, from 22 years of being with one company and 30 years of being with one husband, I have a tendency, <laughs> a certain fidelity concept here. You know, it's, it's bizarre, I know, in this day and age, but, you know, Nichols has been with me since 1973, and his agent is here. Um, I, uh, I've had Rhoda Lerman for just a couple of years, fewer than that. Uh, Sue Grafton published her first book with me. Um, Jeanette Turner Hospital is new to my list and very exciting. And I really like finding new writers or writers who are new to my list. Uh, that's an adventure, that's, that's an experience. But I don't want to publish Martin Midlist because he's tired. And that's what I see in what's on this piece of paper. And you can't go out to the wall with tired or with handle. Uh, you might do it for nonfiction. Uh, I might go to Mike and say, uh, hey, this guy teaches on this campus, and he's got this sort of hot date rape case, and is this good for our list? Is this a good fit for our list? Do we want to, I mean, forget about the legal side. Is this something we want to deal with? That here's a novel that's going to be told from the professor's point of view. Oh, God. You know. <laughs> John Updike's urban exploitation of, oh God, you know? Everything that I hate about fiction is American fiction of 50s, 60s. God, give me a break. Give me a little magic realism and we're home, okay? No, I can't, I can't defend this guy. What I can ask are some questions. You know, where has he published those five books? Now, we have an agent here who's an agent I really respect, and she's, she's solid, she's good, she doesn't play games, she doesn't lie, steal, cheat, or sell her children. Um, she defends her authors very well, and there's <coughs> nothing an editor respects more from an agent than that ability to defend the author. That is their job. 
Um, I did read a lot of the uh, return questionnaires, and I noticed that there were some people who demanded adversarial relations. And I like to think that it shouldn't have to come to adversarial. It doesn't mean we're in bed together, but the fact is we're all in the same business. Maureen asked whether we're giving anything back to the community of literature, and I don't know that we are. I work on a one-by-one -one basis with my writers, and that's important to me. And I work with agents, and I don't expect them to be my friends. I don't want to socialize with them. I want to respect them, and I want them to respect me, and I want them to come to me when they have something they know I would like, not when they have something that they just want to throw out there. So I kind of discourage a lot of unnecessary uh, submissions in my office. I even don't work with the secretary for that reason. Um, it's a very personal relationship. Um, but I would ask Ginger whether she hasn't moved uh, Miss Midlist around a lot. And maybe she's had expectations on the second book or maybe the third or the fourth. Or maybe the editor has left or, you know, gone to grow walnuts or whatever editors do when they decide that this isn't what they were taught in English 101. I wasn't an English major. Um, there was nothing wrong with being an English major. I just wasn't an English major. <laughs> I think I read for pleasure is what I'm trying to say, and I publish fiction for pleasure, too. Um, I think maybe Martin um, was hustling a little, uh, and maybe he had expectations that the industry at no time could really fulfill. We cannot force the great American public to buy or read books. Um, we are all up against certain realities out there. Um, in that New York Times piece, which I thought was in many ways quite well done. Um, there is a range of readership running from, I think, Philip Roth's 120,000 readers uh, to, I would note, an editor, Man Police, editor I respect, saying 6,000 readers. Um, I used to say 60,000, but I'm beginning to lose heart when I see the sales figures. We've all had the experience of the Michael, of the, what, what was his first name, Richards? Mark, Mark, Mark Richards. We've all had that experience. The only thing I really find suspect about the piece is the net out, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, that's a pretty high net out for the kind of book that they went out with and the kind of press they didn't get, um, for the kind of turnouts and what have you that are in that article. Reading between the lines, my guess is it probably netted at six, maybe seven. Not bad. Not bad. That's average. Sometimes it's lower than that. And as a publisher, I feel we have to stick with those people. If you believe in it, if you're just crazy enough to believe in it, and you've got a few reviewers who agree with you, you stick with those writers. Makes it tough for newer writers coming along just because there's not a lot of parking spaces on editors' lists and because of the contraction of the houses. And I think that's what we're coming back to here, that there are real problems for agents going out to find houses to park their clients. I don't mean just park them, I mean to get them properly attended to, especially with fiction, excuse me. But I think Philip said it, there have always been problems. There are certain problems that are new now, uh, but they aren't so new we couldn't have predicted them 20, 25 years ago. The growth of the chains is not a new phenomenon. We have seen this since the late 60s. The superstores is a new phenomenon, but it's, a, it's just a, it's a permutation on the independents. You think the independents are wonderful. I think the independents are wonderful. But you know what put Bridges of Madison County on the bestseller list? It's the independents. You know? Let's not make a fairy tale out of it. It's a tough business, and it is a business, and there is a bottom line. 
and we have to make money. But every book does not have to make money, and every book does not have to make the same amount of money. And what you're looking for is a house that understands that. You're looking for an industry that's flexible enough to understand that. Up until recently, I think we had that industry. I worry that it's getting tougher and tougher because more and more people in the industry at the top level are running it as bottom line publishing. Every book gets accounted the same way. Overheads are accounted against every book the same way. Maybe poetry slips through. That's tough. That's where we're at. I think I've rambled. Um, can, I, can I ask something now that I, being uh, just, you know, just plain writer, that's what Philip is, that's what I am, would somebody quickly in two seconds define midlist? <laughs> give, us, give us a quick thing on midlist for those well, of us, for, you know, not everyone in the world speaks the funny. lingo. And I think it's important to know that what we're doing here now is we've all gotten right into speaking and listening to the lingo. Let's go. Can we back up and give us a quickie on that? Can you do that? Do you want to do that, Mark? Or, I mean, I'm sorry, Michael. Uh, whoever is next or, or somebody who from the inside quickly do that. Well, I think, I mean, I guess I would define, and I think most publishers or publishing people would define midlist as that, that Middle, middle of the list, not the biggest books on your list and not the, the poetry or the, or, or the small pieces of literary criticism or works in translation, but probably, I don't know, 60% of your list? Well, how many would you print of the Midlist title? Simon yes. Schuster? Yes, Simon <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Schuster. Midlist at Simon Schuster may be bigger than Midlist at other places. Oh, but, come. Uh, <laughs> We'd certainly announce more copies than a lot of No, 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 what you print. She's rapidly becoming ugly. You would say 25,000 copies. I think 25,000 is the high end of the midlist. Very high end of the midlist. Now, that is a shock to me, you see, to hear that. I've always wanted to really nail a publisher on what a midlist book was. Because 25,000 copies, unless I've charged you, unless I really walked in there and got a million for it and you don't have anything else <laughs> coming in, 25,000 copies of a hardcover book is a good sale. I know he said Simon Schuster to do this kind of thing. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's be honest. <laughs> I, said, well, we I, I think the term midlist is a misnomer because I don't think it's really middle. I think it's more like what the publisher worries about is the 7,500 to 15,000 yeah, copy yeah, sale. Or even lower than that. Lower, yeah. That's what you all worry about, exactly right? Exactly right. That's right. Okay. Well, Midlist has Midlist assumes that it's the second book. First novels are easy to do too, because yeah. you don't expect anything. So therefore, first novel and lots of people help you with first novels. You say so. It's already we've got to say there's got to be a track record, and it's usually a track record of failure. Failure is failure is failure is a relative question there. You know, I mean, failure could mean you only sold the 6,000 copies you printed and you sold clean, mm -hmm. you know, but you didn't have a paperback because the paperback houses aren't buying anymore because they don't have any parking spaces. They don't need you. Uh, failure could be that you got a great review from Dick Eater, thank God, but the New York Times passed you by because they do <coughs> very often miss you. But uh, university presses are very happy with the 6,000, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Or the 2,000? Publishers are very happy yeah, with 6,000 well, clean I think, sales. Yeah, okay. But that, wait that a minute, if you paid $100,000 for that here. book, you got a problem. Proportions here have gotten all crazy. Um, Michael, I'm sorry, you want to go on. You gave us a good definition. 
<laughs> now, say your mind. Now that we amended it, Michael. <laughs> well, I think my good job has actually been done for me. Marion, and it's an editor who I respect a great deal, decided not to uh, buy Martin Midnight's book. My problems would be a lot greater if she had decided to buy it, uh, because I would be sitting there as the marketer salesperson saying, now what the hell am I going to do with this book, and how am I going to, uh, how am I going to market it, and how am I going to sell it? Uh, so I'll flip the scenario a little bit, and I'll say that Marion, or whoever the editor was who I respect, or even I didn't respect, I worked with, uh, bought the book, and despite what many of you think and all these articles that are written, marketing directors are not sitting around in New York publishers saying yay or nay to acquisitions. It just doesn't like work like that. I happen to work at one of the houses. Uh, I mean, I sort of feel like I'm president of my own execution here. <laughs> I represent uh, all that probably is wrong with, uh, with publishing, uh, in many of your minds. Uh, I feel a bit like a sitting duck, and I should be running from one end of the table to the other with a bullseye on my back. Uh, but uh, but if you're that good a shot, you can uh, you can take your take your shot at me later on. Uh, in any case, I took the Prozac early, and it's kicking in now. <laughs> uh, I'm probably single-handedly as a as a publisher or representative of Simon Schuster responsible for killing most of the houses and imprints that people have, uh, have talked about here, but guess what? There's also some good news. We're responsible for what we think is uh, reviving and burnishing uh, Scribner's, which is a, a great imprint and one that we mm -hmm. hope to, uh, uh, to help uh, onto bigger and better things. So it's not all bad news, in fact. And in fact, one of the reasons that we want Scribner's as a name and as an imprint at Simon Schuster is because we've never felt that, or we haven't felt of late, that we're particularly good at publishing fiction, literary fiction, mid-list fiction, mystery fiction, a lot of the things that Scribner's, I think, has done quite well on quite limited resources, and we know that we have a lot to learn about doing that. As far as commercial nonfiction goes, I think we're among the best at doing it. I think Martin Midlist's situation, uh, the only salvation for Mr. Midlist, in fact, is the handle that Ginger talked about, uh, is the fact that we have some nonfiction hook uh, on which to, uh, to hang this book, try to position this book, and let's just say that Ginger did find a buyer for the book, and it was a colleague of mine at Simon Schuster. Or I worked at Henry Holt, and Marion bought it for a modest sum of money. Uh, and we sit down and we begin to put together the publishing plan for this book. Marion certainly wouldn't have bought the book uh, had she not thought that there was this nonfiction hook upon which to hang this book. And then we sit down and we talk about how we're going to position this book. And we get Martin Midlist in, and we get a publicity director in, and they begin to talk and we start to see uh, if he's got friends who can give us quotes, uh, if he's willing to talk about this particular case. I mean, working at Simon Schuster, if it involves libel, uh, we're interested in it, believe me. Uh, you know, we have something hot here. So uh, I don't know uh, what our expectation is of Martin Midlist's book, but I can tell you that from, a, from the angle, and I'm being completely commercial and crass here, which I'm sure you expect me to be, uh, we have something to work with uh, here. Uh, Ginger has moved uh, Martin Midlist to Simon Schuster because she thinks that Simon Schuster is the publisher that can revive his career. Uh, one of the things I would actually approach Mr. Midlist about, and maybe through Ginger or maybe through Marion as his editor, is uh, would you consider changing your name? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and publishing under, under another name because, look, you know and I know that your career is going nowhere fast. You know and I know that you've sold out completely. So why not make yourself into somebody else? <laughs> and give us a fresh start completely, uh, which we probably could do as long as he doesn't get his picture taken and uh, his friends don't identify him. Uh, 
Well, I would want to know where, uh, where Mr. Midlist lived, where his college was, if he had friends uh, who could be influential in giving us quotes. Obviously, if he changes his name, they'll have to lie, too. But uh, if they could give us quotes to help us begin to position this book. Uh, Jerry, in his scenario, said that Martin Midlist's books sold, uh, had great reviews, but they were in places like Santa Barbara and Milwaukee. Well, guess what? There are bookstores in Santa Barbara and Milwaukee. And uh, these are markets that are actually particularly strong for good independent booksellers. So once we put this uh, uh, publishing plan, or we begin to put this publishing plan that actually has publicity as its main hook for Mr. Midlist, then we say, who are the influential buyers that we want to try to reach out there, book buyers, uh, uh, customers of ours, who, who, who we can get copies of the bound manuscript into their hands, or if we decide we're going to go whole hog, that we can get copies of the of reader's editions. I mean, that's going a bit far, and now we're not talking Midlist anymore, we're talking about really breaking him out. So I might be getting a little carried away and have my marketing hat on here, but what we would try to do is to put the book, the manuscript, the reader's copies into hands of people who could read it, who would read it, who would hopefully like it, and we would begin to sort of build from the ground up in reviving uh, his, his career. We'd also try to get copies out to our sales force uh, and tell them that uh, this is something that we think we can, we can do something with. And we worked toward going to, to sales conference and making a presentation of this book that indicated that we weren't going to blow the lid off of uh, Mr. Midlist's career, but we thought that he had done something quite different uh, than he had done before. Uh, that we're not talking about his last four books, including Body Parts, which was published so long ago that most people have it off their computer now. One of the things, as I'm sure some of you know, that salespeople, publishing salespeople, are up against very much now is they go in uh, to a bookstore, uh, and most every bookstore has a computerized inventory system. Uh, it happens at the chains, it happens at the independents, it happens all over, and they look up on their computer what the last book by Martin Midlist or whomever you're selling them sold, and they said, well, I took 10 copies, I sold two, I'll take two of this one, or three of that one. So you are dealing with, uh, with hard sales figures and you have to overcome that. So the good news is that maybe Martin Midlist's books were published long enough ago that they've fallen <laughs> off people's computer inventory systems, or that the buyers who change quite often, especially at the chains, and most of them are about 22 years old, never heard of Martin Midlist in the first place, and you can, uh, you can start from scratch. And the other thing we do um, uh, is try to get, because we're probably not going to spend a lot of money on advertising, we're probably not going to spend any money on advertising, let's be really honest here. We're going to put our money in publicity. Uh, and send him around to, to certain places and try to get him booked on some national shows to talk about this case and what uh, compelled him to write this book. And we're going to put our money actually in one of the best marketing devices of all, and that's the jacket of the book. That's where we're going to put our dollars. We're going to make this book look sexy, flashy, provocative, all the things that we think it is, because in fact, this is a commodity that we have to go out and compete, not only with everybody else's books from all these other publishers, but in fact with books from our own list. And that's one of the things that I, I think Harry will probably talk about as a publisher, looking at the overview of one's own list. Because very often, when you go out as a sales force or as a marketing team or as a, 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 in a publishing venture, you're looking at your, your, your entire list and you're saying, we have, we're publishing 70 books this season in hardcover, and we have you know, 25 novels. And those novels all have to compete uh, against each other in a way. And there are, uh, when you're selling a list, you might not like to hear this, but there are some books that you have to give up in order to get something on other books. And you, the best sales reps know which accounts can sell which kinds of books and know where they have to twist arms.
and where they have to back off. So that's my sort of scenario in a nutshell. If Ginger had sold the book to Marian and, and we had, uh, had gone forward to it. Could I just it. say how glad I was as an agent for Martin to find Michael? <laughs> <laughs> and it's that kind of variety that we really need in publishing because fiction is so subjective. And Michael really liked the book, so thanks, Michael. Yeah. One of the things that I think, yeah, that was, uh, that helped a lot to, to get the reality fix, which is, I think, what you gave us and we need. On the other hand, I, uh, before um, we go to Harold Evans, one of the things that I do think we should bear in mind as we discuss uh, matters later is that we seem to be talking about novel, 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 novel. There's an awful lot else out there. And we're getting a little bit trapped into um, the poor old fiction corner, um, which may at this point, given the fact that people have to have extra literary, how, how often I have wished that I had killed my mother, uh, extra literary um, hooks and uh, or journalistic fiction that's going to go. I think that we might um, we we might want to broaden our discussion of the publishing business. Um, but I pass it now to Harold Evans, who knows a good deal about it, indeed. Well, thank you. Uh, I will broaden it a bit. I, I remember Donald uh, Livermore, who was one of the founders of Random House. I know Donald Klopfer. It was. It was not the other. Donald Klopfer once said, every writer is a son of a bitch. And he had cause to say that because Theodore Dreiser had just thrown a cup of hot coffee in his face. <laughs> and that was in the beginnings of Random House when the, they founded the Modern Library and then set themselves out to publish books of that kind of quality. And although occasionally when facing a heavy loss or an intemperate agent or a heavy red line at the bottom of the balance sheet, every publisher feels that when the writer says, can't you spend a little more on advertising because you've already spent 50, 60, 70,000 and you know that it's writer's vanity you're appealing to by those extra ads. Those extra ads are just as bad as those second printings. They usually cost you the, the difference between a profit and a loss. Uh, of course, for most businesses, they can be read in a second. They can be read in a balance sheet. And publishing is different from that. There are two balance sheets in publishing. There's the numerical and there's the cultural. And let's not forget that. Because over a, a number of books and over a period of time, the numerical balance sheet, which is a complex of many factors, has to be positive unless one has a Medici or an Emperor Franz looking after you. And I agree entirely with my colleague on the left that you cannot judge a book just by the single profit and loss of that particular book. The purpose of an imprint or a publishing house can't be defined in terms of profit, no more than the purpose of architecture can be defined in terms of the arithmetic of quantity surveying. And I like to think that Random House is defined by its writers and its editors and the books they produce to advance the civilization, to enlighten, to entertain, Indeed, I think it's arguable whether you can have a commercial success at all on the simple basis of following the business numbers, whatever they lead, because it's likely to diffuse rather than enhance the identity of a house, and it's also likely to mislead you in a particular commercial direction from time to time. And uh, Mike's absolutely right about the nightmare of the computer with these bookstores. You go along with, uh, say, 
Romeo and Juliet, the second play by William Shakespeare, or something like that, and they say he didn't sell enough <coughs> on the first one, which nobody's ever heard of. So the breakout book needs all the skills and the devices of the kind he's had. But even more than that, I want to give you an idea. We, we, I was asked to speak not about what's right, but what about what's wrong. So let me give you an Good. example. <laughs> an example of what's wrong and what the problem that a publisher faces is. The New York Times publishes uh, each year a list of notable books. Uh, it's an annual thing uh, in which we got 29 random house titles were listed uh, in the notable books this year. And I thought it would be interesting to see what was the financial or business record of these 29 very distinguished books, not distinguished by my say-so, but by the New York Times editors. One in art and music, three biography and memoir, two business and economics, two essay criticism and letters, six fiction, three history, two medicine and psychology, six in current affairs and politics, and one title. Well, culturally, that's a clear plus. That's the cultural balance sheet. Those are very, very good books. I'll give you the titles. We lost, on that collection of books, $698,000. <laughs> give you another example. Last week, the American Library Association chose the best books of 1993. I was absolutely thrilled to see that Random House swept the board in non-fiction. We had two out of 11 in fiction, chosen by the librarians, and six of the 13 in non-fiction. Six, no other publisher had more than one. We had six, this is a both, but both carries a sting in the tail. Here's the titles of the books. The Warbirds by Ron Chernow. Martyr's Day by Michael Kelly. Kennedy. Kelly. Paul Kennedy, Preparing for the 21st Century. Helen Freese, a, uh, a Catholic sister, Dead Men Walking. David Remnick, Lenin's Tomb. Gore Vidal, United States Essays, which won the National Book Award. Great cultural contribution. The balance sheet, arithmetically, we lost $370,000 on that collection of books. That's what's wrong with the business. Now, nobody can say to me, as they're inclined to do in Random House occasionally, you paid too much for those books. With hindsight, yes. But when you think about what somebody like a Ron Chernow or a Gore Vidal has to do with the length of time to write that kind of book, particularly with somebody like Chernow writing a major biography, they need the time, they need the resource. Where else are they going to get the support? So in the, what's wrong with the publishing business is partly cultural, it's partly the bookstores. It's not, in my judgment, and I may sound over-defensive, entirely the fault of the publishers that some things are going wrong, that we lost $370,000, and we published those books extremely well. We got hundreds of thousands of dollars of free publicity for them. And we also spent a lot of money. Let me give you an example of the, an insight into the business. Two of those books, two novels, which I didn't include in the, uh, the names that I gave you, but uh, one of them was Nobody's Fool, and the other one was Here's Your Hat, What's Your Hurry? Okay, so including two novels and the rest of non-fiction, this is what we spent. We spent 51000 on one of those books that made a profit of $64,000. We spent 120000 on advertising and promotion, not publicity this, on another one and made a profit of $70,000. The rest of it's downhill. 17000 spent on promotion and advertising, 7000 lost. 78000 spent on promotion and advertising, $300,000 loss. 
71,000 spent on the next book, 60,000 lost. That's a novel. 46,000 on the next one, $25,000 lost. $87,000 on the next one, 101,000 lost. 2,000 on the next one, 7,000 lost. There's absolutely no correlation. Now, some of those books, obviously, the advances are very high. And we come back here to the need of the author to be sustained. But we also come back to greed, to Martin Midlis. We come back to the expectations raised by the mass media and so on, that book publishing is enormously profitable, a million dollars to be made. And there are. All those culturally important books that I mentioned to you were paid for by two books, which made a profit of a million four hundred thousand dollars. Two. No other books we published came anywhere near that. So all the cultural books were passengers on two books, which attracted in my house and a little skepticism: Is this random house? Should we be publishing this kind of book? And my answer is, like hell, we should. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to publish the other kind of book. So what's gone wrong, which is the question we were asked, and has anything gone wrong? In some ways, although I agree with my colleague here, in some ways it may be a difficult time for the literary tradition. In terms of non-fiction, I think the kind of books that have been published by all the houses are absolutely wonderful and marvellous, and I don't see any diminution in the level of quality and brilliance that is coming in, in those directions. So I think we have to bear in mind when we say what's gone wrong, let's bear in mind what's gone right. Some writers are writing marvellous books and many, many more copies of those books are being bought today than were bought 10, 20 years ago. So that's what's gone right. What's gone wrong is in the publishing area where some imprints have closed because they have been too, had too small a base in terms of what they could hope to attract by backlist revenues, what they could hope to attract in revenue by major bestsellers. So should publishing houses get bigger? The problem is, as you get bigger, your overhead rises. And one of the things we try to watch all the time is the overhead. On the other hand, the bigness, I don't think, given the way particularly Random House is organized, has led to a lack of diversity of product. If you check the difference between Crown and Canop, and Random House, Times, and Villa, the last three for which I'm responsible. I think there's still a range of difference between them, but we now have a, a, a business base and a cash flow base which enables us to back the books which need it and which cannot survive in the open marketplace, as those I've just given you, and also enables us to talk in it with more muscle to the bookstores and, and to the media generally. Of course, there are huge changes taking place in the bookstores, and the independents are very worried about what's happening with the superstores. I think at the end of the shakeout, we'll be selling more high-quality books than before, because I think we're improving in what we do. But I think we have, I don't want to trespass into Gator Lee's next session, but the things we can do, and we are doing, with relation to royalties and other things. I think, for instance, Martin Midlist, and I've got to, I happen to have brought his P&L, <laughs> I did the P&L, but I took Simon & Schuster numbers for the gross print. <laughs> we printed 29,000 copies, and we sold 17 returns, which Virginia mentioned are the curse of the business, and the returns, as you all know, have gone up dramatically. Uh, we printed 17. We spent, uh, oh, $67,000 on advertising, Martin Midlist, 
the gross profit was 39% on his book, $82,000. And after we paid for the advertising, for the selling, the distribution, and the administrative costs, we lost $50,000, 29% on that. That's a typical... Now, that's a very, very good novel, as it happens, and I don't regret publishing it. And it's the high end of Midlist. But what's the answer to that? One answer to that is that he shouldn't have asked for $100,000 and we shouldn't have given it him. And the second answer is the scale of royalties should have changed. And I do come back to our first speaker here. The no note of whining in Martin Midlist is not, not one that's acceptable. I think the problems are there in the business terms and the way I've described. But let's bear in mind, we are publishing some wonderful books today. Some people are losing their jobs. They're losing them in steel. They're losing them in other areas. It's a necessary and, I think, inevitable reshuffle. But unless the real danger will come when this horrible phenomenon was mentioned at the end here, when each book is judged as a profit entity on its own, that would be the death of publishing. So long as we're able to regard the total of, of, of the house's titles as, a, as, as a, the collective thing, so long as we dedicate ourselves to quality all the time, I think publishing will flourish. Oh, thank you. Um, there were cards. Uh, yes, I, I think it, uh, you know, flourish. Uh, I think that I think that in in fact you did broaden very much broaden the discussion and I'm glad I'm glad of that. Um, it brings up lots of problems and I think many the idea of flourishing when I suppose many people in the audience don't feel it's flourishing. But not only that, we also and I hope some of the audience uh, questions that you are writing down now on your cards and that are going to come up to the panel. Um, the cards that were passed out. I hope that some uh, one of you will ask about smaller presses, university presses, and uh, a kind of two cultures or multi-cultures that might be cut. Yeah, what's going to happen about the... Yeah, I, I please talk about that, Philip. Well, I, We've I, been talking about big-time publishing. I think that the, the small presses and the university presses are, are doing an amazing job. I, I get their catalogs all the time, and uh, It's a healthy interchange. I, I worry about uh, what will happen to the small presses uh, as, the, as the government support shrinks and as corporation and foundation support shrink. Because most small presses are really subsidized by the slave labor of the owners, you know, uh, they, who, who basically become indentured servants to their presses. And it's a, it's a wonderful, noble thing. One of the things I think that small presses do that is much more, uh, much more than the commercial houses is that they bring in more foreign uh, literature, literature in translation, uh, not to mention, of course, experimental literature. I, one of the things that worries me about this, the publishing scene right now is that <coughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit um, insular and Americanocentric, uh, and we're not really getting enough of the, uh, of the good literature from abroad, and uh, not just the contemporary literature, but I also wish there was a way, and maybe Dave Felicia's panel can address this, uh, wish there was a way to keep uh, classics in print and to keep, uh, to, to order the backlist in a different <coughs> manner. Uh, I think small presses are, are, are doing a lot of that. They're bringing back books that were initially uh, 
done in, in uh, commercial house. Well, I'm just saying, I'm keeping classics in print. Yeah. I relaunched the modern library two I years ago. I think that's ago. great. I, don't, I, I really do. And, uh, and we've got more than 100 titles in print now. The yeah, Library of America is terrific. Maybe well, I'm greedy. I want, I, want, I want to have the Duke de Saint-Simon's <laughs> memoirs back in print. I want to have Madame de Sevigny's letters in print. I want to have uh, very small uh, de Sevigny. I mean the real letters. I want to have um, uh, Alexander Herzen's uh, uh, autobiography. That's a brilliant book. That's about four volumes, though, isn't it? Yes, four volumes. All four. Yeah. Could I throw, could I throw <laughs> right. just a bit of cold water on this, um, this wonderful view of the small presses? This view of the small presses only will succeed if writers and agents uh, will allow it to succeed. Because I can tell you one story, uh, which I will not name names, small press, uh, succeeding quite nicely, publishing very serious literary novels, uh, fiction. Um, agent walked in uh, and in 15 minutes swept out saying, Darling, this is a wonderful place to have your first novel published. You can't expect the small presses to do your excavation and, and, and R&D work for you and then take away because you want big time, big name publishing and big time, big name advances. It's got to work both ways. Yes, but there are authors who ha were published in big name uh, publishing and now going back like Leonard Michaels, uh, Michael Stevens, Bhakti Sidwa, they've all gone to small presses now. It's very interesting about the first novel. We published John Irving at Random House. First book, 2,000 copies. Second book, 700 copies, something like this. Third book, 1,800 copies. Fourth book, again, no sale, no sale, no sale. So we said, sorry, we've got to let you go. So he goes and they published The World According to God, four million copies. <laughs> I'm pleased to say he's coming back. <laughs> um, the cards will be collected while we talk. Is someone out there collecting them? <laughs> uh, by the way, Go just ahead. on the mention of foreign, which Philip did, there is a burgeoning market now overseas, uh, which is going to come to, to the aid of publishers here. I mean, we are, I think all publishers are selling very well in uh, Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia is becoming an important market, even Russia is becoming an important market. They, they pay little, but they pay quickly. One of the things that we haven't discussed, uh, well, Marianne did in a way when she brought up the fact that she has <coughs> been at one house and stayed with authors for a long time, is the problem, and I'm sure we'll get a question of this kind, or that you will get a question of this kind, the relationship between the editor and the author uh, surely has been um, not destroyed, but uh, it's become very problematic mm -hmm. with, with the switch from house to house and yeah. the imprints going out. And uh, I think that uh, it's extraordinarily it has been extraordinarily important to many writers to work along with an editor or to be supported in what they are doing by an editor. Would someone like to speak to that, please? I've got three editors at Random House who are 100 years old, collect collectively. Uh, yeah. And they have many relationships, but it's distressing to them, Jason Epstein, Bob Loomis, and Joe Fox. Distressing to those brilliant editors, as much as to anybody, that that relationship of author and editor is frequently disrupted by an agent in search of the extra $10,000, $15,000, $20,000, $100,000, and I don't know what you can do about it. Uh, you can make multi-book contracts, 
you can emphasize what this particular editor brings to the product or this particular marketeer, but I think the open marketplace and the expectations aroused among authors means that they will shop around and break those relationships. Sometimes, but um, there's the other side too that I've, since it's been written about, I, I don't, don't think there's any problem in my mentioning Anita Shreve, who had been published at Harcourt and um, was very devoted to her editor there. In fact, other, a couple of other publishers had approached us from time to time and asked if she would be interested in a contract elsewhere. No, thank you very much. She wanted to stay there. But not only was her editor fired, but everybody that she had worked with there was fired. And it was extremely disruptive to her. She, extremely disruptive. And, and um, that uh, we've had to cope with a lot. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it, that, that, that got brought up. And I think that you addressed the, the cultural balance sheet yeah. very well. It, the thing that, that I was hoping Rebecca Mead would stress in her article is that I think a if, if, if you buy a company like Harcourt, you've got a cultural responsibility that comes with that house. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you default on that responsibility to the culture, that is extremely, uh, extremely bad. Something's going wrong, isn't it? Look, everybody's going to be watching the Oscars soon. And uh, the papers are full of it. The, I mean, the volume inches on that is incredible. The National Book Critics Circle, or the Library Association, or the National Book Award announced a book. You're lucky if the New York Times, who isn't here, I see, tonight, gives you this. No? No, no, she's there. No, Becky, you're lucky if the news pages of the New York Times. <laughs> she's, in she's in charge of the news. She's an honest woman. Um, <laughs> no, but, no, but seriously, no, it's the, the, the culture is that book prizes don't make news by comparison with a film star whose work was made for him by the writer who wrote the novel in the first place. Never mind that. Why is it in this culture, and this is very particular, and may I say, to the United States, as I lived in England for much of my life, book prizes <coughs> and book awards are major news in England. They are major news in France. In the United States, you're lucky to get a paragraph. Why is, what's wrong with the country? <laughs> Listen, and I'm an American citizen. I can say it now. <laughs> Well, maybe I we're making a big mistake trying to movieize uh, what our product, <laughs> if you'll forgive the expression, is. I mean, we're—I'm not trying to be an elitist about this, but we're not trying to sell movies now. We're, no, we're trying, trying to sell, sell writing. I want attention for the writers. If somebody mm -hmm. writes a masterpiece of fiction, why shouldn't it be celebrated? There's no problem with that. I don't disagree with that. But why are we talking? Are we talking about celebrating him on national television? Oh. Are we talking about throwing bottles of champagne? And are no, we I'm talking about, about talking seriously keeping his works in print? Well, yes. And making sure that he is accessible in a in a reasonably priced edition, and that yes. there is an ongoing relationship for that writer. Okay. I mean, we are not putting out movie stars, know, although no, we are putting out movie yeah, stars. I'm not talking. Look, you've missed the point. If nobody. If nobody knows that this book is there and is superb, maybe they've read it in the New York Times book review, maybe they haven't. But if there's a great deal of acclaim and fuss, you know, G Gabriel Marquez, for instance, or whatever, why, why, what's wrong with making publicity about a, a great writer? I'm not talking about movie stars, I'm talking about writing. Of course we'll keep it in print, of course we'll do all those other things, and we'll sell 5,000 copies every year. If you're lucky. Well, there isn't, and I think, well, I, I think I'd agree with Marion, I think there is an envy of that other business. 
<laughs> that other dominant business uh, that goes through a lot of publishing. Uh, here are some of the questions. Uh, I will read. Some writing is better than others. Let's see. Let me see if I can <laughs> I can read this that. one. <laughs> yeah. Some writings. That's a, a really high class critical <laughs> comment. Yeah. Um, Many lament the size of the readership for quality trade books compared to the old days. That's in quotes. Has this readership truly shrunk, or has the growth of the mass market readership dwarfed it, merely dwarfed it by comparison? Would anyone like to take that up who knows about uh, such uh, actual real statistics on that? I don't know what the real statistics are. I mean, I, I've, I've heard tell that, I mean, I don't know what the old days are were, were, were either, but um, I, I've heard tell that, you know, that books that were published in, in 1975, novels sold, you know, 30, 40,000 copies, right. 50,000 copies. I have no reason to believe that's not true. Uh, I think more books are published now than were published in 1974. I think there's more competition, not only among, book, uh, among other books that are published, but there's certainly a lot more competition for discretionary income, as they say. And we're certainly bombarded by a lot more uh, uh, options uh, by staying home and watching 52 channels on cable or going to the movies or renting videos or doing whatever else uh, it is we're doing with our discretionary uh, dollars. At the same time, I think there's no question that fewer people are reading, uh, that uh, the statistics I see are that fewer, fewer people are, 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 per are reading and purchasing fewer books every year. On the other hand, there is a huge mass market that has been opened to the hardcover book by proliferation of chain bookstores, proliferation of the warehouse clubs, and other places that normally uh, uh, books, books weren't sold. One thing I do want to sort of go back to, and uh, I mean, the movies aren't all bad. I mean, the movies sometimes do wonderful, wonderful things for wonderful, wonderful books, and I can only point to a, a novel which uh, is called Schindler's List, which was published in 1981 by, uh, by Summit. Uh, I think published well. Uh, I don't know how many copies it sold in the United States, but it won the Booker Prize in, uh, in England. Uh, it was a wonderful novel. I was at Penguin then. We bought it for reprint for not a small sum of money, and over the course of 10 years or more, sold 80,000 copies in paperback. That's not a huge number. It's not a bad number. Uh, on the other hand, uh, when, that, when Steven Spielberg's uh, movie was made, and I don't know if you've seen it or not. Some people think, it, think it's a masterpiece. Uh, I think it's a masterpiece of a novel. And the book has now sold uh, about 750,000 copies uh, in paperback on the back of, uh, uh, of this movie. I think that's good news. I think that book is now in, uh, in the hands of uh, three quarters of a million people who probably wouldn't have come to it uh, otherwise. And I don't think that kind of uh, mass culture is something we should look down our noses at. I think that all of this conversation that we uh, have up here about good writing, bad writing, what sells, what doesn't sell, does uh, uh, feel a little elitist to me. Uh, I read with great uh, interest the uh, back and forth in the letters in the Penn newsletter a, a couple years ago about the woman who worked in the bookstore, the writer who worked in the bookstore in New Jersey and was bemoaning the fact that all uh, that was available was uh, Daniel Steele and Stephen King uh, everywhere. Uh, I particularly enjoyed Stephen King's response to that letter because I think it uh, sort of hit it uh, right on the head because some books sell and are popular or commercial does not make them bad books. Uh, to each their own taste. As long as the books sell and reach a, a, a large readership, uh, that's uh, what, what interests me, not just because I'm a marketer and a salesperson, but because that's more peop th those are more people who are actually 
going into the act of reading. And moreover, when those big popular books, the, uh, the Michael Crichtons, the Tom Clancy's, uh, the, um, uh, uh, the firm, John Grisham, Grisham, Grisham. I forgot his name, uh, John Grisham, <laughs> when those books are published, more people come into bookstores when those books are published. The chains will tell you that when a new book is published, when people know about it, when a big blockbuster book, the traffic increases, people buy, make multiple purchases. They don't necessarily just go in and buy that one book, although sometimes they do. But big books, big commercial books are good for the book business, and they are good for, for readership. Well, I've spent my life listening to that line, and I've uh. also talked to the independent booksellers about it, and they do not agree with you. First of all, most of those bestsellers aren't sold in bookstores. If you look at those numbers, you're talking about 35 to 40,000 copies, and I hate to invoke the horrid bestseller list of the New York Times, 35 to 40,000 copies getting you on and solidly on the bestseller list in 1972, 75, 76. Today, you are talking about 300,000 copies, 400,000 copies, and we are not talking about Schindler's List as a movie tie-in in paperback. We're talking about hardcover sales. And you talk about how much money the bookseller has and how much space he has on his shelves to put the second or mid-list line of books in there when he's got to turn his rent and his overhead around on so many times a year, two to three times a year is it that turn has to go down? He can't afford to take more than one or two copies of your mid-list book, and you're lucky if he takes that. And it's not because he's a terrible person. It's because we have so superinflated what he has to have, because we have so superinflated the marketplace. And I'm sorry, those people walk into the shopping cost company, Costco places, they buy the remainder titles on which you guys are making nothing and they buy the best sellers at 30 to 40% discounts. One day, I'd like to see all those wonderful people in the last 20 years we've brought to reading. I just did jury duty, let me tell you. <laughs> Not even newspapers. <laughs> can, I, can I say something? What? Uh, uh -oh. I'd like to uh, make an ambivalent reply to uh, Marion and Michael, because I feel I feel really midway, if not mid-list, between them. <laughs> I really I really don't feel um, um, uh, threatened by uh, Stephen King or Daniel Steele. I feel that they, they live in a different universe from me. I I will never sell 750,000 copies. Uh, although, if I ever do write such a book, I will change my name probably to Michael Jacobs or something like that. Uh, as long as the royalties come to me. Okay. Uh, but I think that, I think, I think there's a way of getting around this whole issue of elitism, non-elitism. I mean, both, both uh, kinds of books can coexist, and maybe in the 21st century, you know, scholars will be looking at Stephen King as a major uh, writer of this period. We don't know, really. Um, so I think that's a, I think it's an old argument. I think it's a tired argument. And and if if the bookstore orders only two copies of my book, I'm contented. What I want is when they sell those two copies to reorder them. And what I also want is for books not to disappear uh, from bookstores to have such such short shelf lives. I'm I'm more concerned. I'm less concerned with with. Mm -hmm. 
the, the, uh, the battle between the big books and the small books, mm -hmm. I, I want there to be a way to publish books that sell under 10,000 copies and make a profit. I want there to be a way to keep books on backlist mm -hmm. longer um, and not to go out of print and to have this kind of cautious uh, reordering. I see. Philip, it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely the Hobbesian universe, nasty, yeah. no, brutish, and short. No, but it, there's a good... Speak uh, for yourself, uh, No, but, but something good's happening. You know, the Borders Bookstore, for instance, mm -hmm. and the large Borders Bookstore, the superstores, are keeping books on the shelf much longer. You can go in and find books that were published three, four, five, six years ago, and not the conventional how-to-play-golf backlist, but literary works and non-fiction works of quality. Some good things are happening in the distribution of books, and Borders Bookstore represents one of the fine examples of it. Yeah, I think that it is. I think that the what Philip Lopate brought up is enormously important. The idea uh, of books staying around for a while and the reordering, it's something that if it's if it now is being done more and there is pressure on to do it from the publishers too to the bookshops, I think it would be very, very important. And uh, I also like his distinction. As a writer, I like his distinction not between high and low or whatever. But people do different things, different kinds of things, which leads me to two questions which are here. One of them I will just read, and you really don't have to give an answer, though it is um, um, addressed to Evans Jacobs. Have Random House and Simon & Schuster considered cutting down on office space, lunches, limos for publishers, top executive salaries? Never. No. Okay, <laughs> fine. All right, then, then let's then let's go from 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 the from the limo. Let's go to to uh, the humble the humble Garrett. I haven't heard poetry mentioned. What is the outlook for poetry in the publishing world? Who would like to address themselves to that? You never lose money on poetry because you don't pay anything for it because you kill very few trees, because they're short books usually, unless the poet is extremely well known and you do a collection of full life's work. You don't lose money on poetry, but you don't make a fortune either, and it has to be, and here's Philip's point, absolutely. You've got to keep the books in print. You can't remainder those books. Those books have to be available for your children and mine until the next century. Because you're going to make your money back. You're going to be clipping coupons, as will the poet or the poet's children, unto the next century if you've made the right decision on who you publish. Now, of course, there is a problem. We, we actually represent a couple of poets, but there is a problem in that the houses don't publish many poets. Um, <coughs> Marion's right. We, I expected to lose money on it. I was in shock when we didn't lose money on it. But um, the, the, you can't expect to get your poetry published if they're only going to take two a year for the list. It's very, very hard. So you really have to go to a small press for poetry unless you're one of the very, very fortunate few. But poetry, poets um, do live in a world which I call Poe World. And Poe World <laughs> is, is quite special and has different rules of its own, having to do with readings and lectures and and so forth, and, and I, I do think, uh, to answer the question, the future of, of the publishing of poetry, I think, in fact, uh, poetry is very healthy in America right now, and there's an enor quite an enormous amount of attention given to it. I'm happy to say that. Um, we're going to end up now. 
uh, in a, a few minutes. There's, uh, I will, uh, I think these will segue to this evening's um, discussion. And one is, perhaps will end ours, and the other is large and unanswerable, but we <laughs> should listen to the question. The first one is vanity and greed are creating huge advances for a few select authors. Can't you pay them less in order to fi finance more good, modest, quality books? Uh, in a sense, I think we've been over that, but uh, I thought it was worth reading. Is there any way in which you feel that it is still a legit question, though? Yeah, is there I'm a way to draw ready back? to volunteer yeah. to take less. No? <laughs> That's, that's the problem. <laughs> and the, uh, the other uh, question, uh, which is uh, one we must all consider, is there any way to build a more literate reading public, particularly in the younger population, so that people want to buy and read more ambitious works than John Grisham? Now, see, I'm, I'm not sure that's quite fair. People can can be reading, as far as I'm concerned, Milton and John Grisham at the same time. Uh, from my observation of students at my son's high school and college, very few have an appetite for good writing. That's a much larger question, and I'm not sure that it is really, it is one that is a cultural question having to do with education in America. Uh, to what extent do publishers feel that they have a responsibility uh, in that direction. Since we've also been talking tonight, and we should get on to that perhaps in the next session, we've been talking about trade publishing more than the enormous uh, sections of companies which are mostly very profitable having to do with texts. And uh, that too is part of the publishing scene right now. Um, and it it's something that we can't discount, well, right? Well, I, I think there's a place for trade publishing to, 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 to try to uh, help uh, people be more interested in books, good books. Mm -hmm. And I think, it's, I think it starts with children's books. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, I think, you know, I think you publish good children's books, encourage people to buy children's books and read children's books to their children. Mm -hmm. And I think that if, if, you, uh, if you raise readers, then you have more readers. Uh, I know it's very simplistic, but uh, I, I believe it to be true myself as a parent. I think if you buy video games for your kids, you raise people who you have kids who watch video games. That's right. W well, I totally agree with that. What we need in this country is a revolution. No, they don't. I, I, I agree with you there. There's a huge reading public out there that has an appetite, which, which has, is being fed, but it's a uh, fast food appetite. I think that's true. Um, I very much want to thank you all for coming. And this evening's session will uh, go to other questions. Thank you very much, and thank the panel. Thank you. That was such a good
If you want to hold your seat for the second panel, put a coat or something on it, okay? Thank you. portion of our panel discussion on the business of book publishing today. And I uh, consider this part of the, the crowd the really serious group. We're going to get down to business and work out the kinks that we brought up in the first session. Um, this panel is going to address the question, so what can we do about the issues that were raised earlier this evening? Um, I think we resolved the fate of Martin Midlist, our uh, case history author. We also raised some much larger questions, among them, how do we build and serve a readership in our current cultural climate, which is a question I find myself returning to again and again. Our moderator for this panel is Gay Talese, well known to many of us here, best-selling author, most recently of Unto the Sons. His work also includes The Kingdom and the Power, Honor Thy Father, The Neighbor's Wife and the Bridge, and New York, A Serendipitous Journey. Five of his books have just been reissued by Ballantyne Ivy. He is a longtime member of Penn and serves on the executive board. I'll turn it over to him. Thank you very much. I hope tonight to learn something. I've been married for 35 years, and most of what I know from that editor wife of mine is what I know about publishing. It's really pillow talk that gives me my knowledge of publishing. And it is a very favorable uh, picture of publishing that I get from my beloved Nan. And I must say that in my case, too, I've been blessed in having wonderful relationships with publishers. None of them, of course, where my wife was, but all of them give me the impression that publishing is a healthy state and that to be a writer is to be well treated. And I know that rarely is this the feeling of writers that I come to know, perhaps on occasions such as tonight. So I am atypical and perhaps ill-suited to this task of getting to the question of what can we do? What can we do for the writer, for the publishing houses that, as we heard particularly from Mr. Evans tonight, publish distinguished works that earn so little money and sometimes lose great, great amounts of money. I, uh, I have with us tonight four people, none of them writers, except one of them who does uh, uh, books for children. And, uh, and the younger of the, of, the, of the four we're going to hear from first, Ann Massetti, 26 years old, um, I think, is that right? and uh, has a, a, a young and hopeful view of the future. Not jaded yet, give her two years. <laughs> and uh, she's a marketing manager of Knopf Publishing Group, 
Alfred Knopf, his Pantheon, Schocken and Vintage Books, and she has some views as to what can be done to improve this world, and particularly um, the role of the writer in this world of publishing. And I'm going to ask uh, Anne uh, to, to, to speak and then the other three. But I want to say before that when we're into this program, just 15 minutes into it, I'm going to ask the microphones go around this room because I do think it's often the case on occasions such as this where you are not heard from and the very curious people that, well, that I am and you are, we don't learn very much. Also, I do believe sometimes organizations such as Penn, which I do love and have been part of for a long time, tend to be rather like publishing itself, tends to be very familiar and very forgiving and having little knowledge perhaps of the disenchanted larger world of the reader as well as the writer. So I want to hear, and I've been permission, I've been given permission to, to hear from you early in the program, so it's not something that after you're tired of, of 25 minutes of what's going to be said up here, then you feel there's going to be someone saying you only have five minutes for a question. Let, we're going to do it early, because I think that the energy from this audience will be illuminating, and it will be a fair representation of a larger picture than any of us up here can give you. So it'll be somewhat of an alteration of the first program uh, earlier that you uh, participated in and heard. Okay, Anne Massetti, what are you going to do to make life better for everybody? Well, that is a big order to fill. Um, I think one of the first things that we should focus on that hasn't really been carried through to its fruition by the first panel is who is really selling our books. Um, we took the process from author to agent, agent to publisher, uh, publisher with the input of marketing and sales to bookseller. And then there's a crucial step that has been left out, which is if you look at who is on the front line of bookselling today, it's a clerk. It's a 20-something uh, person in a superstore it could be someone very devoted to literature in a fine independent bookstore, but it seems that we have not put as much attention into reaching that person as we have into reaching the general public through advertising um, or into exciting editors about books through all of the uh, wonderful lobbying that agents do. So I think that in the midst of these large superstores developing with now upwards to 180,000 titles and someone who is wandering the store being distracted by the espresso machine and music piped in, um, that we need to find ways to direct them to books which may be as easy as educating the people who are selling those books. Um, at Knopf, we put a lot of time and energy into sending reading materials to stores, to gathering in cities with uh, bookstore clerks, not necessarily the people who are buying the books at, at the, uh, you know, the high corporate levels of Barnes & Noble and Walden, but the people who are selling the books and we bring them in for pizza and we talk about the books and we give them complimentary copies and we see results from very simple efforts like this. Nothing that you would find in a publisher's catalog or a formal marketing plan but really getting to, to the first line of book selling. 
Uh, I think there are other ways that for not a lot of money, we can be reaching the people um, who we rely on for hand selling. Um, perhaps it's an author introducing him or herself on audio tape. Perhaps it's a personalized letter to bookstores. Um, there are many ways to sell fiction. I don't think any of us has the exact formula. Um, often it's actually reading the book that is the most compelling, but sometimes vicarious enthusiasm um, can really do the job. So I think we all need to think of reaching out a little more to those people who are neglected in this very important process of book selling. Um, I'd also like to suggest in, in an unconventional mode that we take a look at the value of advertising. I have sat in countless marketing meetings um, where we hear things like, uh, we have to run an ad in the New York Times book review because it's expected or because it's the right thing to do. And often it is the right thing to do for a book. But often um, it's not. And some of the alternative marketing options, um, which seem less glamorous uh, when, when you suggest them to people, are really going to be more effective. Um, for instance, we know one of the best vehicles for selling books right now are store newsletters. Um, and they cost a lot of money for the stores to put together. One thing we as publishers could do with the five or $7,000 that we put into an ad, perhaps, is help underwrite newsletters in a few hundred stores. Um, again, it's not glamorous. But if you multiply that times everybody who is reading the newsletter, who comes into the store, who's a regular customer, you may be connecting with more readers. And I'm, I'm again, wanting to stress this is particularly important for mid-list books. Um, I might want to take that money that we would spend in a one-shot in the New York Times or the Times Book Review and look for targeted markets around the country uh, where there might be a local interest angle, where there might be a specialty market and try to build the sale of a book from there and take the success story of that sale and broaden it to other parts of the country. Um, I might want to produce extra reading material for clerks. I might want to have a few more of those pizza parties so that people can uh, really find out what is coming into their stores that they may not be responsible for buying. So I guess part of the message here is to uh, abandon some of the, the formulas or things that are thought of as formulas um, in terms of thinking about mid-list. And we know that often these books with 10 and 15,000 copy printings are not going to have the budgets that allow us to do things like formal advertising, extensive tours. But think about um, less glamorous yet very effective ways to, to promote books. Um, another thing I'd like to stress that, that didn't really surface in the first panel is the importance of trade paperback. Um, we know from Vintage how many of our authors' careers have really blossomed uh, through the life of their books in paperback. Um, stores do not put enough of a priority on merchandising these books. Um, I think that we would all do better to have tables up front that uh, basically tied readership over between hardcover books published by um, authors. And I think that uh, everyone realizes it's a profit center not only for publishers, but for bookstores as well. Thank you. Um, can I ask you one question briefly? Um, I think many in this room know those clerks that do not know where the books are. Uh, how can you really go about pizza parties aside 
educating these people, making them more effective? I mean, specifically, what do you have in mind? Specifically, um, diff different things for different kinds of stores. Um, for instance, at Vintage, we've just started a newsletter to all of the clerks who work in Barnes & Noble stores uh, with the guidance of some of the buyers at Barnes & Noble, uh, sending them complimentary copies of books, sending them little bits of information about the publishing story behind a book, um, giving people an inside track on um, books that, that they might not otherwise be familiar with. Um, Logistically, though, how will you get to know who these people are? It takes a lot of hand work. Well, I mean, you're it's gonna have to know the sales managers of the store. Mm -hmm. Then he or she is going to have to tell you that, that Dolly May, who's off on Wednesdays and also teaches on the side, is, is only there. Well, the, how there, do you is know? The, there is the generic label of uh, store manager. There is the, the little message we often send with materials, please distribute this among your staff. Um, there, there are ways, I, I agree with, with what you're saying, that, that this is a, a workforce in flux, but there are ways to, to get to them in large mm -hmm. quantities. Good luck. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Robert, Robert Wyatt, once with big time publishing, now with small time publishing with your name on it, and no longer are you a, a, a regular at the Four Seasons, I'm told, uh, not uh, spending money in the literary way that is so common for those who dine well at two o'clock in the afternoon. Tell us, um, you're the president of Wyatt Books. Tell us about how you're gonna make life better for all of us. Well, food's better down in the Flatiron just than <laughs> it is in Midtown. Um, for a moment, you may, may not think that uh, I'm coming to anything, but a point will be made. Uh, two hours and 78 years ago tonight, London time, Henry James died. I wonder what he would have been thinking of these proceedings. Some things tell me he would not have come. His friend Mrs. Wharton would have agreed that we don't do such things, do we, Henry? But if he had come, he would be bitching about the utter failure of the New York edition, his disappointment with his publishers, Houghton Mifflin, Harper and Brothers, Macmillan Company, and especially Scribner's, who had issued the edition. Much of it had to do with a misunderstanding over permissions, but most of it was his failure in finding an audience for his selected works. Things really don't change that much, do they? Perhaps the only difference now is that failure, like success, is much more visible in a mass culture. Now, what I'm about to do would have deeply offended Mr. James and Mrs. Wharton, and it probably will offend some of you. I can't help it. This is my life, and my life is books, and that's all that matters. I want to tell you about the first four titles I will issue as a Wyatt book for St. Martin's Press. If I don't do it, no one else will, and a captive audience of readers is difficult to find nowadays. There are 14 Wyatt books signed up now. 12 of them are novels. All but three of these are first novels. Don't worry, I'll be fast. But each book is worthy of your attention and even purchase. The first book <laughs> is Paulina Simon's first novel, Tully. Set in Kansas in the 1980s, it's about the first dozen years of life after high school for five young people. Tully is one of the strongest and saddest women in modern fiction. It will be published in at least nine foreign countries. 576 pages, $23.95. <laughs> the June novel is about a young Portuguese-American woman in California. Like the woman in the piano, she does not speak, but creates her own languages in her own way. Thomas Keneally says of it that you encounter a previously unencountered, gorgeously enriched America, and characters with blood in their veins. The author is Catherine Vaz. The book is called Sodad, a word you cannot be translated. 304 pages, $20.95. 
July brings us a wonderful oddity by Erwin Schwartz. It's a novel formed of documents, a memoir, maps, diagrams, photographs. Characters in it include Conan Doyle and Terre de Chardin. It is about the Piltdown hoax, and it is in itself a hoax, although I don't think a, a hoax should, be a, should announce itself. 256 pages for $20.95. I especially like the, the barcode here on the back being, <laughs> being abused by the mandible. The last title on the first list is deliciously titled by Edgar Ribeiro, I would have loved him if I had not killed him. It gives new meaning to the words bizarre and wondrous. The colorful translation from the Brazilian Portuguese is by Margaret A. Neves. It's 208 pages at 1895. You should take a chance with it. You won't be sorry. <laughs> the point I wish to make is that you mustn't be shy about celebrating your books. <laughs> Anytime or anywhere, whether you are the writer, the editor, or the distributor. We're a society that has mislaid the joys of making books, living books. If you don't have fun with books, stop mucking around with them. Books deserve better. And I'll shut up now. Thank you. Wendy Strothman, who has 14 books under the table, I think, <laughs> is with Beacon Press in Boston. And what do you suggest for the, for the more positive future? Well, I'd like to uh, present a non-New York perspective on this, since I think some of you probably don't come from New York or didn't, uh, and present the small and non-profit publishing uh, perspective on uh, the problems that you're all facing. We are a small non-profit house founded in 1854, and I think we have an advantage in not being here. We don't go to the same cocktail parties you all do. And we tend to hear different things on the street in Boston if we're not stuck in a uh, traffic jam or a snowbank. Um, Beacon, and I think many small houses, do spot trends. We look for things that the rest of you are missing in New York. A good example for us is Marion Wright Edelman's The Measure of Our Success, which uh, Beacon Press published a, a year or so ago and has more than 300,000 copies in print now. When we first uh, decided to publish this book, people said to us, nobody's interested in family values. Well, that was two months before the Republican convention. <laughs> people also said to us that, we could, that we'd never succeed by putting a picture of an African-American woman on the cover of an advice book. In fact, many booksellers told us that. Everybody said, who is she? And we said, just wait. She's going to become famous and important and, and trust us. Well, we knew because we had editor, editors out there on the street. And in fact, most of our books come not through agents, but through directly through writers. Many of our writers have agents, but in fact, we're talking and making contacts directly with writers. And I think it gives our list a strength and a kind of diversity and, and funkiness that is missing from many um, lists these days. An example farther back in my past was at the University of Chicago Press, which of course uh, uh, took on a first novel by a 73-year-old University of Chicago English professor uh, who was told by an editor in New York who would be interested in a novel with all those trees. Well, A River Runs Through It was published and uh, 20 years later made the bestseller list when the movie came out. Um, I'd like to suggest to you, since I assume the audience is, has some uh, writers as well as publishers in it, some things you ought to think about when you're approaching publishing houses. Uh, first of all, I would say to you, don't let your agents do all of the negotiating for you. You really should make some of the decisions yourself. Don't abdicate the, the responsibility of who should publish your book. Every book is different. Every editor is different. Every house is different. 
and a match for one book is not necessarily going to be a match for your next book. Get to know the editor who wants to buy your book. It may be worth some money to uh, find the editor who really will understand what you're going to do and who will actually be at the house when your book is published. Uh, in case your book is going to be orphaned, make sure the house is behind your book. I hear so many stories of people whose, whose books are orphaned because the editor is left and nobody at the house cares. An example for us is that we had an editor leave a few years ago because she was um, critically ill, and she left behind a, a, a group of books that she'd signed up, environmental books. Well, we all cared tremendously about those books, and even though she wasn't there to see them through, we saw them through. And I think that's terribly important for all of you. I've heard agents say that uh, when they sign up a book, they just assume now that the editor won't be there for a nonfiction book when it's published several years later. I think you should ask where you'll be on the list. More and more authors are coming to small houses after having bad experiences at trade houses, uh, larger houses, uh, because their book is a mid-list book. And I have to tell you, we're hearing lots of wonderful stories here tonight about, auth about special marketing for authors. But I've, I know so many authors who had not one thing done for their book at a trade house. And they come to places like Beacon or University Presses or small literary houses because they hope that every book and assume every book on the list will get some publicity attention, author tour attention, um, maybe even advertising, although that's probably something we do less than, than a lot of other houses. When you have very few eggs in your basket, you have to coddle each one of them. I also think you need to be realistic uh, as, as authors. Not every one of you is going to be a bestseller, and so many times uh, we realize that people are disappointed when they have uh, overinflated expectations, often because they've been paid, overpaid in the past, or because they just assume that their book is going to be so sold and bought by every person in America. The smaller houses tend to target their markets and tend to look for targeted books. Marion Wright Edelman's book, we found out, uh, took off in uh, black beauty shops across the country. We targeted that to African-American uh, news weeklies by, uh, by packaging canned interviews with the authors, knowing that those, that media often doesn't have the kind of staff to put together uh, author interviews. We look for, for unusual ways to promote books, we, and we tend to target our books. We, we're very strong in gay and lesbian books, African-American books environmental books. We know the fields in which we're good. Um, we do a lot of essays and memoirs. We know how to reach the people who want to read those books, and we don't try to reach other people. I think often books are sort of dumbed down in order to reach a broad audience, and then they don't reach anybody. So I also think you should be aware in terms of, of where your book is placed on the list that uh, in superstores, the books that are on the front table are there because the publishers paid for them to be there. They're not there because the buyer of the store thought that this would be a nice book to put on the front table for Mother's Day. They're there because we invested five or seven or ten thousand dollars to put that title there. That makes it harder for a small press that doesn't have that kind of promotion money, but it also means that if you're at a large house and they're not going to put that promotion money behind your book, it's not going to end up at the front tables of the superstores. So I think it's your responsibility as authors to ask lots and lots of questions of your publisher before you sign up. I have a couple questions. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, well, one that's interesting, your Miss Edelman mentioned that the Af uh, the uh, uh, the hair salons, the uh, 
African-American hair salons were places where books could be uh, displayed. Is that, is that true? How do you get them into the stores, uh, into the salons? We got them into the stores by going through the, uh, the African-American news weeklies. We didn't sell directly to, to the stores. They bought through the wholesalers. Oh, so you have to encourage the owner of the hair salon to buy X amount of books and keep, what, 40 50%, and you think you're going to get the rest? Get, right. What about uh, when you have a distinguished author that you're, you're urging uh, authors to, be, to, be, to recognize the virtues of, of a small publishing firm, um, not to be guided or misguided by an agent? Uh, how, when you have a star as you do with Cornell West, keep him? How do you keep this fellow from going to Random House for a fifth times, which okay. fifteen times what you can pay him? How do you so do that? Sometimes they stay and sometimes they go, and sometimes we can. We're not as uncompetitive in our advances as people might think we are. It depends on the author. It depends on what their needs are, whether they have alimony payments or not. Um, right. Whether it's going to take them three years to write a book or six months. Uh, and and, and how, how close their relationship is with their editor and what kind of a job they think we did with the book. Well, we don't have an agent on this panel, obviously, but earlier I was wondering, I wish I could have asked this question myself, I sometimes think of publishing, I, I equate it to, to, with, with the world of sports, and we read about the high prices paid for, for people who, as the season progresses, do not perform. And it's true of book publishing. And yet, is it not the role of the agent to get as much as the market can bear? Is the agent supposed to be, if not philanthropical at least, is the agent supposed to have a rather um, uh, a view of, of being as loyal to the industry as to the client she represents and he represents? I think it's the agent's responsibility to do the best they can for the author, but I think sometimes overpricing an author up front, as we heard with Mr. Midlist, mm -hmm. can often uh, hurt the author's career in the long run. If the book is not well published, if the author's career is seen to be flagging. We, we have one author on our list who's done uh, three or four books with a, with a house I won't mention. Uh, we're, she said to her agent after, after three books with very little attention and, and lowering sales, I don't want to go back there. Uh, take me to North Point or Beacon. Well, North Point had died at that point. She came to Beacon, and we're do now doing her third book, and each book has sold more than the, the one before it. So I think sometimes it's a trade-off. Sometimes you might not get the money up front, but you might make more in the long run by mm -hmm. being well-published. And one of the complaints we often hear from authors is the, that the editors move around. Is it true or is it not true that in smaller publishing firms, editors are more that are continue for longer periods with the firm, or is that just about the same as big-time publishing? I suspect there's more stability. For one thing, it's harder to move if you're not in New York. Uh, it's also harder to move if you own the company. <laughs> 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 okay, well, our next uh, and final speaker is a person who may be speaking to the future, one that will not be companies uh, as we know them today, but, but in the electronic era that we might see in the 21st century, it might radically change the way we think of book publishing today. And this is Mary uh, Pope Osborne, who is the author of more than 25 books for young people and is a playwright and is president of the Authors Guild. And today, or tonight, is going to speak uh, really to the, to the issue of, uh, of electronic publishing. So uh, tell us what's so good about that. Well, the Authors Guild believes you cannot have a discussion about publishing today 
without talking about electronic technology. A lot of people, especially authors, as soon as they hear electronic publishing, they want to leave the room. So I want to give you just three examples to hopefully hold your attention. Um, CD-ROM, most of you have heard of. It's text mixed with multimedia. It's used on a special drive with your computer. It can also be used on a handheld um, unit, like it's like a Sony Walkman almost, where a little three-inch CD-ROM disc can uh, give you 100,000 pages of text in a little unit that's the size of a paperback book. That's available now. If you were going on a trip around the world, you might rather take that than 300 books with you. Another form of technology that's uh, being developed and is being used right now is print-on-demand. In bookstores, high-speed printers with electronic technology can print out a book as you stand there and bind it for you. So we're looking at that as an inevitable thing that will go into bookstores down the line. Online electronic publishing, a lot of you may know through such um, networks as Internet and CompuServe, where you can send a story or a book electronically to 10 million people if you want. Uh, there are that many, many subscribers of Internet. Who are, are, is being published electronically now? With the exception of science fiction and children's book authors, uh, most of the electronic publishing is happening to nonfiction. It's happening with dictionaries, encyclopedias, cookbooks, travel guides, language books. They are being published more now electronically than they are in print, um, print on paper. Colleges and universities, it's a radical uh, new thing there. Course packs are being put together electronically. Textbook authors um, are getting, hopefully, compensated for these course packs that are going out. Libraries uh, are buying more CD-ROMs now, many of them, than they are books. Uh, some libraries are taking as many as uh, 10,000, 20,000 books, uh, scanning them and storing the information on disk. Uh, you can go to a university library, a new one now, and see very few books. You'll see computer screens with disk available. Well, how is this good for authors? Um, in some ways, it could be fantastic because uh, if this really takes place as it's inevitable, it will because you've got a whole generation of Nintendo viewers who may not be like us and are very comfortable with computer screens and these alternate ways of reading. Um, if this, when this gets in place, there'll be a lot less cost for distributing books and for manufacturing books. Therefore, it would seem that author revenues would increase a great deal. A lot of that depends on authors right now hold their rights to these electronic technologies. We see again and again in contracts at the Guild, um, people are being asked to sign contracts that not only give away electronic rights, but for any new media not yet invented. And a lot, many authors are signing these contracts. So you may want to question that. You might want to educate yourself on a lot of these issues if you're an author. Um, it brings up questions of copyright that are major questions of library usage. I'll close with this one image that's a little chilling, but it shows you how much we have to think about. Um, let's say you publish your book, you sell it to one person. Let's say it's a person who buys for the Library of Congress. They could access your book to every 
to, to 10 million people. You will have sold one book. We're going to have to find a way that all those um, distribution through electronic technology, that authors will be compensated and publishers too. We're in this together and it's gonna be sorted out in this, these next few years. It's, it's inevitable. Thank you, thank you. Now as I said, I'd like to get the, get the audience involved very quickly. And um, all I ask is that you stand, if you have any question, stand. And I hope you will not mind giving your name and direct the question to whomever. Way in the back, please. No, excuse me, do we need the microphone? Yeah, we must wait for the microphone so this is on the, uh, on the program which is being taped. Yes. Um, my name is Chris Butler. Question, um, I once had an encounter with an agent that demanded that before there would be any talk of representation, that electronic rights would be considered. How do you get around all that? You mean the agent wanted to consider it? Right, yeah, the agent required that I be willing to um, surrender, uh, not surrender, but ha have, them, have them to be negotiated. Yes, you should have them be negotiated. I mean, that's, that's what's being asked of you now in every contract. Right. And, and you should try to hold on to them as best you can. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Is uh, yes, my name is Peter Ruby. I'm an agent. I was an editor for a while, and I am a writer. Um, your point about electronic rights, I, I think, is very well taken, but the problem I have found as an agent is that um, the big companies, Random House, Simon & Schuster, are refusing to give them. Uh, I had somebody who very nicely said to me, I just bought a book for a million and something, and uh, the electronic rights was a deal breaker. Now, we wanted that book. You take it or leave it with us. So, you know, it's very well saying, get your rights and keep them, but the fact is the publishing companies are not allowing us to do that. Uh, and that, I think, is a major problem that has to be addressed because they're basically taking writers' incomes. Uh, Wendy, do you want to ask, answer that? Well, let Wendy answer Actually, that. Actually, this is a case where I think the small publishers and the big publishers are, are uh, together on this. I think uh, electronic rights are very, very different from movie rights. With movie rights, you're selling a story and somebody else is making the film and that's a completely different product. With electronic rights, you're taking the editorial work that the publishing house has put into a product and you're, and you're selling it in a form that can undercut directly the publisher's own sale of the book. And if the electronic rights aren't handled well, the author can undercut their own royalties from the sale of their own book. So I think it's important for those rights to be held by one entity. We're already seeing it with course packs. Course packs are very badly cut into our backlist paperback sales. And although you get royalties on those little uh, five cents or whatever we get from Kinko's, that, that does not even come close to making up the lost sales that we've had on our backlist. Well, it, th this may be where interests diverge because it will help the authors, of course, packs if they're compensated uh, because they will be electronically sometimes in better ways than if they um, rely on the Xeroxing that happened in universities uh, up until recently. Um, as for the rights, in answer uh, to what you're saying, we are being told by publishers it is a deal breaker, but we're finding through individual testimony that there's room for a lot of uh, give and take. 
So I think it's something publishers and authors are going to be talking about in the next few years to come in, in a very uh, significant way. We don't want um, the, the publishers to be the only winners. And unfortunately, uh, authors, and, and that's why I like the platform tonight, uh, are not talking to each other very much about it because the subject scares them. But you can be sure that the business people have whole arms of their industry figuring this out in advance. So in our own way, we have to, um, to work to educate each other. That we have a position paper on the subject. And there'll be lots of seminars, hopefully sponsored by um, our group in the next period of time. Anne, how do you feel about this? Well, I, I want to go back to what Wendy was saying because we have seen the impact that used books, that custom course packs, and other um, more innovative ways of getting text material have, have really eroded the sale of uh, sort of the meat and potatoes of our business, our backlist business. And I don't think this is something that's just going to affect the, uh, the classics as we know them because we also know that What's uh, very excitedly being brought into the curriculum are books like Sandra Cisneros' House on Mango Street and the writings of Jill Kirk Conway. So I think it's a front list as well as a back list issue. And it is a concern of ours that uh, things like books on demand really be uh, regulated as they're developed because uh, it could quite definitely, especially if the machine that prints and binds is located in the bookstore, cut into uh, what is our business. Um, I do think, we do think that the, the various technologies and printed books can coexist, but I think it's a, a period of caution for us as publishers. Do you agree, uh, Robert? Yes, Robert I, I, Wyatt, I, I, books I, I, I don't think I can contribute much more beyond the panel because okay. it's still in a state of considerable confusion. Yes. If there are any other people wanting to ask questions, why don't you uh, move over there where Pamela is now and you'll be heard more quickly. Uh, yes, my name is Signa Hammer. Um, the question again of electronic books, books on demand, whatever form they're going to take. Um, there are two sides to this issue because cutting into the publisher's front and back list is one side. But from an author's point of view, publishers also serve as gatekeepers and when books go out of print, they're gone. A book that is, exists electronically exists forever, and it needs no space on any shelf for inventory. It's out there, and that means that no author's book would ever be out of print. And this is something that's going to change publishing forever. Publishing will simply not exist in the way it does today. And people who are on the internet are already talking about this. I mean, books just go out there. There are no gatekeepers. How um, can the author know that he, she, he or she's being properly well, that's another question. That's where Mary Pope Osborne and the Authors Guild come in to, to dealing with the question. Look, ASCAP exists. I yeah. mean, songs are published in zillions of different ways, and they're played on the radio, and every single time any little song is used, the writer gets compensated. If ASCAP can do it, I don't know why we can't do it in, in books one way or another. Any other questions? Yes, right near to Tom. Uh, my name's Tom Lipscomb, and uh, I've been a publisher for many years, and the last six years or so created a system for tracking authors' royalties through electronic media. Uh, in other words, it can be done, and it can be done right now. Uh, the word publish comes from the Latin word publio. That does not mean print. It means to announce or to get the word out. 
The publisher's job is to bring attention to the work of the creator. Insofar as publishers are printers, writers don't need them. The electronic world we're moving into is very confusing because there are no price points here. The publishers want everything because they don't know what's valuable and what isn't valuable. The agents want everything because they have no idea how to establish a basis of sale either. The key thing is to be able to establish each sale in electronic media as it's made and to create pricing points as we learn more and more about this medium. But I think we want to remember a wonderful example from college publishing, the poet Edward Arlington Robinson's estate, and it was very difficult on giving rights to his poetry. Robert Frost, who was hardly known at all in those days, gave very generous rights for the reuse of his poetry in school books. Today, very few people know Edward Arlington Robinson's poetry, and a great many people know Robert Frost. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. Uh, my name is Lynn Bundesen, and excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, okay, okay. We'll, we'll be next first. Uh, Ms. And Bronson. I just want to comment. It works perfectly after that. I'm curious as to why so far publishing has not taken advantage of, in my opinion, of the bulletin boards and the online services to promote their books. I mean, you were talking about the pizza parties, etc. But I'm a sysop for a computer online service, meaning I run a bulletin board and it has two million people. And I've given away um, disk to publishing, to publicity departments of publishing houses and called others, including Beacon, and never heard back from them, uh, you know, offering to put their authors on and never even received a return phone call. And I know that this works to some degree, although I don't have the figures about how successful it is to have an author on computer online. But I know from the obscure thing, I'm um, about uh, 89th name in some author's acknowledgments in a book. I mean, you have to read all the way down to the bottom to see my name. And I've had over 100 people on this bulletin board in the last two months say to me, oh, gee, are you the person who's in this author's book? So if people are reading that constantly and they're on this online, I'm interested why I've never heard yeah. uh, how come these services aren't being promoted for authors. Thank you. Anne would like to answer that. Question and I, maybe I would like to respond to that because I think that it's. Um, excuse me. Did you all understand the question? No. Uh, would you mind? Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> Yell your name. My name is Lynn Bundesen. Lynn Bundesen. Thank you. I think the the question to restate it is why publishers are not taking more advantage of the internet and other computerized communication systems, and I want to respond by saying that we, that we are, uh, but that our efforts in this area are still um, very new. Um, just to give a few examples, going back about uh, a year, year and a half ago, uh, when we were about to publish Jim Glick's Genius um, and all the news about the, uh, the advent of uh, America Online, or perhaps not the advent, but the increased use of it and of CompuServe, uh, was something that intrigued us. So we did several things. Uh, we posted an excerpt from the book um, encouraging reader response. To every reader who responded, we had a place where they could send in for a reader's copy of his nonfiction work. Um, we also put Jim Glick on the inter, uh, rather on America Online to do a real-time conference, which is 
sort of like a talk show over the television, uh, over the, uh, the computer transom where the author sits and responds to questions that are typed into them. Another example, we published uh, an original paperback at Vintage recently called 13th Gen, which uh, while not necessarily a literary book, was very much a book of ideas uh, for and about the 20-something MTV computer junkie generation. And what resulted from our posting uh, news of this book on the internet was a very interactive forum that is still going on among students on college campuses around the country um, responding to the book, taking issue with some things in it. It's a book that we've gone on to sell over 70,000 copies of. It's a book that started with a printing under 15,000. So I, th I think these are just a couple examples of how we are starting to use um, the various computer uh, forums that are available. We need to do more of it. There are new things coming up every day. Um, CompuServe has now a mall for books where we can place various uh, book and software product and let people shop and then order directly with an 800 number. There are going to be tremendous changes, of course, in the near future, but, but it's, it's an area that we are keenly looking at. Keep in mind that publishing is always very, very behind. Uh, we will we will catch up. Uh, I've I've had a couple of books that did it independently w without efforts of my efforts or the publishing house. I had a book called the Quincon, and a book called the Eight, and they were adopted by the online services. Um, we just I didn't force it in there as I should have, and I, I hope to do that with with my new list. <laughs> <laughs> I will get in there somehow. <laughs> Uh, Wendy, uh, there was reference to Beacon Press. Do you wish to respond? Well, we're actually uh, weighing several al alternatives at the moment, so that may be why you didn't hear Okay, that. yes. Yes, next question. Uh, my name is Arabis Perry. <coughs> Can you repeat that? My name is, with laryngitis, Arabis Carey. Uh, I wrote out a question for the first part of this evening, but I was too late getting it up there, so I think it may apply still now. Um, Query, is People Magazine the root of all evil? <laughs> Question mark. Well, let's see. Who wants to answer that one? Um, well, uh, how about maybe Mary Pope? Oh, no. <laughs> President of the Authors Guild? <laughs> Defender of the First Amendment? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> there are much more evil things than People Magazine. I'd like to think it is. <laughs> um, if it's a, a vehicle for getting books mentioned, that's always positive, and it is. Uh, I, I know they always have their little book list in the front. It, and, you know, the positive thing, I think, that uh, to keep in mind is that it tells stories, and storytellers, uh, whether fiction or nonfiction, will always endure in whatever forms now our culture is presenting them to us. But uh, if you look at it that way, it doesn't seem as depressing as it might when you look at hard copy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, next question. My name is Bruce Feiler, and uh, I'm the author of two books, Learning to Bow, uh, which is a story about a, a year I spent teaching English in a small town in Japan. and looking for a class, which is an expose of Oxford and Cambridge. And I'd like to get back to the subject of good old-fashioned hardcover books, uh, which is how most of us uh, who, are, who are writing today, I think, are making a living. And sp specifically to what you brought out about getting books in non-traditional places. 
Um, I, I recently heard a, a frightening statistic uh, that I hope is untrue, but I fear is, and that is that only 10% of Americans will ever step foot in a bookstore uh, in their lives. And one of the reasons I mentioned the titles of my book, beside the uh, tradition laid out here by Mr. Wyatt, is that uh, <laughs> I published this book about Japan, and I still to this day do not understand why the book wasn't in every uh, Japanese restaurant in the country. And I busted my way through phone lines and you know, <laughs> battered down doors trying to convince a publisher to acquire this list of Japanese restaurants. These are people who are clearly interested in Japan, and they're in there talking about Japan, no doubt, as they try to work through chopsticks. And here is a book that's going to appeal to these people. How can we uh, get books in non-traditional places to reach the 90% of America that might want to read our books, but who were never setting foot in this bookstore? No less how to get them to the book when they get to the bookstore. So I'm curious about this, and I wonder if, uh, if uh, any of you have thoughts on this matter. Um. Who would like to answer that? <laughs> it's, it's, it's really difficult to make the connection. It's like, I think the, the inventiveness really comes in knowing who to contact. I would think in your, in your case of the, um, of the hair salon, I mean, how do you make the connection? Or in the case of the Japanese restaurant, do you go to the Japanese Restaurant Association and who's gonna uh, do this in person and, and, and by, what, by what manner is it properly uh, addressed? Well, you know, it, it's all these, these these department heads that we have, so so numerous that, that they are, but sometimes it isn't quite enough to cover these inventive ways of doing something different. But who else can say something? Well, uh, Bob Sachs of uh, the old Harper and Row used to say that if there's a great temptation to spend the last $10,000 generating the last $9,000 in sales. <laughs> and. Um, I guess I would say to you that I would, I would want to test that before spending a lot of money on it. I mean, just on the face of it, it doesn't seem to me real likely, to be honest with you, that, that you could uh, carry books in a Japanese restaurant. So I might be willing to test a few, but I don't think I'd go out with a big direct mail campaign. But How about on a Japanese restaurant? They make $10 in every book. Something <laughs> that becomes very appealing to them. Except that we are told, when I bring it up, for example, oh, you don't want to tread on the feet of your bookstore. If your bookseller goes into the Japanese restaurant, sees your book, they're going to suddenly bury your book. This was the response I was given. In other words, you, it's in your best interest to uh, convene with the bookseller, and therefore you don't want to tread on their sacred ground. I often thought that, that when you go to these large um, banquets, th there are these party favors. There's, uh, and I mean, why doesn't why doesn't the publisher uh, get to the head of the dinner, the, cha to the chair chairperson of the dinner, and say, um, okay, here here are uh, uh, six hundred copies of, of, of this book, and you can make fifty uh, percent or whatever, and that would be a, a way of selling books, don't you think? Sure, and and to, to pick up on this, the uh, Looking for Class, which is my second book, is about Oxford and Cambridge. I know that three million Americans go to England every year, and a million of them go to Oxford and Cambridge. And they so fly I, there. I have this idea. How about exactly. airplanes as a place to sell them to <laughs> travel agents and include them in the price of your, you know, six hundred and fifty dollar a week in England. It's going to take you on a bus yeah, to Oxford or Cambridge. Yeah. Actually, I, uh, Wendy was just saying that one of us up here should probably hire you to come work in a creative. You do. I work for Random House. I mean, I've been hired. <laughs> but to. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'd like, I'd like to respond with something constructive because I think even as, as marketing people with, with um, a lot of 
books that we need to attend to and frankly a finite amount of time to attend to them in um, that maybe to think in terms of, of broader strokes. I mean, for instance, did you put an ad in the alumni magazines uh, for Th those, those schools, and is there perhaps a wholesaler who delivers product to Japanese restaurants? Is there a trade journal? I mean, I think there are ways at, at getting at these things which may be less time demanding um, and possibly effective. I can't conceive very many publishing sales departments who would take on a special account like that, quite frankly. And I'm sure they would tell you exactly what, what, you, what you said. What no one has mentioned. Question. Let's have your name, please. Excuse me. And, and we have to have you on tape here because we don't want to waste this. And, and your name what again. Connie Thayer, one of the huge growth areas in publishing has been the special sales area, which is devoted entirely to selling books outside the traditional book marketplace. And they would be the ones that would be maybe test marketing in their local Japanese restaurant. Um, it seems a little doubtful, and, but it is, <laughs> it is undeniable that word of mouth and from one place, from one account, from one restaurant, from one store to the next is what probably does more to sell books than anything else, which is why Bob Wyatt's approach is the right one. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I see my friend Susan Brownmiller wants to say something. But uh, while, the, while the microphone's coming to you, let's hear from here first. You, you have a microphone ready there? Yeah, go ahead. And then, oh, you're not. Then Susan Brownmiller, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is Susan Brown Miller making a speech, ladies and gentlemen. I, uh, <laughs> one of my <laughs> cyberspace <laughs> friends is over there, and Connie's there, and Dick. Okay, you have to speak into the microphone. All right, listen, uh, I, uh, I originated the phrase uh, date rape that uh, Milton Midlis used uh, when he uh, tried to, uh, when he was the subject of the earlier discussion. So, like, I feel like I contribute a lot to um, thinking uh, in America, and uh, I like to think that I will continue to have a career as a published author who pushes ideas forward. This is a little different from the midlist um, novelist or the first novelist that we heard a lot about, but I think what I do is equally important. Um, I asked a question, I wrote out my question, uh, that Maureen Howard read at the uh, first panel discussion, but she read it out as a, um, a joke question, not as a serious question. And my question was, why don't they stop using their limousines? Why don't they cut down their office space? Uh, why don't they cut down their expense accounts? Uh, all that stuff that adds so much to the uh, price earnings and you know what they claim, our books cost them to produce. Um, I think it's the most vital question uh, before us as authors. I'm at an age where I just hope I can continue to earn a living at this, you know, until I don't have to earn a living anymore. Um, and maybe I can keep that swing going. But all I got 
from the first panel was uh, Harold Evans saying that maybe we should restructure royalties, and I know that means restructure them downward. <laughs> <laughs> and all I got from about 10 years at SNS was uh, a ride occasionally in uh, Dick Snyder's limo and uh, a chance to visit the house. Uh, and um, some catered lunches from Dean and DeLuca, and <laughs> lots of tandoori chicken with Joni, and Four Seasons Grill. And then when I was at Grove, uh, every time they uh, merged with Weidenfeld or ceased to <laughs> merge with Weidenfeld, they redecorated. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I do uh, think that the burden shouldn't all be on us, you know, how we can live a little more cheaply <laughs> and take more subways. Uh, but uh, as I said earlier, class warfare is rising in me. <laughs> and <laughs> when I, <laughs> I think I'll quit while I'm ahead. Thank you. Well, I think you belong at a Wyatt book. <laughs> Jill, do you have something to add to that? Maybe. Anyway, um, that was a very nice speech. Uh, Dick Snyder will be very happy when he hears the tape. It's going to be sent, <laughs> sent, sent tomorrow with the limousine, I think. Um, um, let me ask Pamela Pierce, are we, how are we doing on time? Are we over? Okay. We have more questions coming? Oh, yes, please. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Was there something more that... Uh, that Susan wanted to say? Thank God. <laughs> um, okay, next question over here. Hi, uh, I'm Jerry Howard, and since I turned, uh, worked on this, setting up this panel, I figure I earned one question. Um, and it may strike all of you as a stunningly self-interested one, uh, since I'm an editor. But I would like to ask, um, I guess, Bob and Ann Massetti um, in particular, uh, in, this, in this electronic future uh, that is so bright and shiny and everything um, that we're facing, and also in a corporate era, can you suggest a better support system for a writer than an editor? Which is to say that it seems to me that for at least the past 60, 70 years in publishing, the main point of contact, uh, not to say support, uh, for writers uh, with um, and publishing houses has been uh, their editor. And I don't want to raise the shade of Maxwell Perkins again. Uh, he's too good at that. I don't want to compete with him. Yet editors have served um, a pretty good function, I believe, in, in relating with, uh, with writers, telling them what they need to know about the fate of their books and, and steering uh, their books through the maze of publishing, sometimes with success, sometimes not. It seems to me that the editor is a diminishing presence in, in the publishing equation, and I think I can live with that. But I would like to know what is going to take the place of an editor uh, as, a, as a point of contact with a publishing house, which is large, or small because 
I frankly don't see it. Um, I don't quite see who you're going to call up if you are a writer at the house to, uh, to share the experience, to get the information, um, to rattle their cage. And um, what's uh, taking up that vacuum? Um, Mary Pope Osborne asked to answer that question. Yes, because I've thought a great deal about this, too. I feel that the creative process of being a writer is ab it's absolutely essential to have an editor. And I, so I have made peace with this whole issue by saying editors go where writers go. And if writers are writing through electronic publishing or, or whatever the medium, they will have their editors helping them to shape their work and develop their work. Who knows who, what the larger structure of that will be someday. But I think that editors are, are inseparable from writers and that most authors would agree with that. And there just may be more. In fact, I think there'll be more avenues for editorial work once there's a proliferation of more publishing through this medium. I'm not really sure what the question was, but uh, the role of the editor, I've... What is going to replace us, Bob? <laughs> you and me. Nothing could. <laughs> I mean, we Look have again. been replaced in, in, in certain frightening and fundamental ways that our job isn't, you know, in, in the old role of the editor, it went all the way through to remaindering. Um, that it, it sort of stops now when you, you, when you drop the manuscript uh, in the copy editing department. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't like that. And that's why I left Mighty Random House, got the hell out of there. Uh, <laughs> Because I wanted more control. I, th I think that's, that's my responsibility as an editor. And you know, there are going to be some of us left. No? I, 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 oh, I'm sorry. I, I think there's also, I think maybe your question implies that the publisher is no longer an editor or no longer appreciates what an editor is doing. And I think there is a difference there between a large house and a smaller house because I think among university presses, most of, those, most of the university press directors were editors. They weren't bean counters. At, at small literary houses, the people founded the house because they had an editorial vision. At Beacon, I still edit a couple of books a season, and I read in every manuscript we publish. I think that's becoming increasingly rare, and maybe that's what your question implies. It does. <laughs> I'd also like to add to that by saying that I think what you're, also, what you're implying is not so much that editors are going to go away, because I don't think any of us here thinks that they're going to, but that at each step of a book's life, as it gets further removed from author and editor, um, the commitment to the book decreases. And I think that we have to perhaps um, be a little more aware of the level of commitment that exists beyond the editor's office in a publishing house for a book. Though it may not always appear that way looking at the net sale of a book and looking at a royalty statement, um, speaking as a representative of the sales and marketing community and speaking on behalf of uh, my colleagues in a sales department that does read and does love books. Um, I think we all have to uh, come together a little bit more in feeling the commitment to the book instead of uh, pointing fingers at, at who has, has made a commitment to it and who has not. Let me, so. let me ask one question then of you. Do you feel comfortable talking directly to an author? Yes. And do you? And yes, do you I, I do. Um, I do talk to them directly, and I do feel comfortable. And among the most uh, enjoyable of my relationships in the publishing house are those with the editors, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. To what degree is the status of the editor, which a writer may regard as the most able of editors, 
what do we in other words we writers might have a wonderful editor and that wonderful editor is fired and we wonder why because the editor didn't earn out is that true answer that what about <laughs> that well why don't you answer uh, uh, Anne first you because you're talking just a second ago and you're young well, actually, and have fewer enemies I, I am going to uh, be, because it's, it is honestly an area that I am not uh, fully uh, versed in the hiring and firing of editors I do think I'd like to turn this over to Wendy okay so. you're still young <laughs> speak, sp I'm aging quickly uh, speaking as a publisher a, a non-profit publisher we don't look at it that way we look at the quality of the books that people are bringing in but we don't do P&Ls either on individual books or on individual editors. And I think that's actually has been the key to our economic success. Well, um, so. any other uh, questions? Yes. Excuse me, if you want to ask a question, you're going to have to be near that young lady with the microphone. Or, the, or she'll have to be near you. Yeah, I think you've waited long enough. I, excuse me, she's, let her answer the question. She's been here for, uh, Pamela, let um, our friend in the first row have a microphone. And you must stand, young lady. There you are. What's your name? My name is Tony Banks, and I'm here uh, as an officer of Black Women in Publishing. And the first thing I'd like to do is uh, thank all of the presenters, because I've learned something from each one of you. And I especially want to compliment uh, Ms. Massetti on her uh, remarks about the value of forming a bonding relationship with uh, booksellers. I've been a bookseller for uh, nearly 30 years now, or in, uh, one, in one capacity or another. As a matter of fact, I uh, was operations manager of the uh, McGraw-Hill Technical Bookstore downstairs for 15 years. So um, it was very uh, encouraging to hear your remarks and to know that there are publishers who do hold booksellers in high regard, especially the frontline front bookseller, which is the clerk. And it was very interesting to hear uh, from Ms. Osborne about the uh, technology because we were just talking about that before uh, the uh, panels uh, started. And uh, interestingly enough, I think that um, in regards to an earlier comment in the first part of this program, uh, how do we develop uh, a readership? We need to start uh, with those uh, youngsters now who are so interested in computers and uh, presenting them with things that will encourage them to read literature, which can be done now according to what's being uh, published and what's being promised to be published uh, in, 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 in that technology. Uh, my comment really reg regards the uh, marketing, the non-traditional marketing. Um, fortunately, once the African-American readers were discovered, what publishers did uh, was to turn to us as professionals in black women in publishing a great deal to find out how to locate those readers, how to sell their books there. So it created a real, um, it, it created employment actually for some fledgling publicists. And one of the things that we advise uh, writers, new writers who come to us, or writers who have been published and don't feel they've been promoted enough, we try to teach them a little bit about not to expect or be unrealistic in their expectations of publishers. Publishers are limited in what they can do for the one book while it's uh, in, in that season. And once, of course, the season is over, it becomes a backless item. And that you as a writer have to become really creative in how you go about 
getting your book sold after that season is over. And so that if you are looking for a particular ethnic group to market to, you need to go into that community and see where you can sell your books. Uh, and I don't think that it was far-fetched to think about going to the Japanese uh, Restaurant Association to see if they were willing to uh, uh, have their books in, in those businesses. I don't think that's unrealistic at all. But I think it's up to the writer. I don't think the writer can just create, uh, give it over to the publisher, and expect everything to happen based on what the publisher's plans are for promoting the book. So one thing that has to be uh, encouraged in writers, and I know that the publishers won't be the ones to do it, because they're going to have to be living up to what they do. But the writers should be encouraged to take things into their own hands. And there are people out here, professional people now, that can help you reach any market you want to reach. You just now have to know which network to network into. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for speaking. Thank you very much. I we think we uh, needed a bookseller for our panel, and we didn't get one, so we're glad we had you. Thank you. How about one more question? Thank you. What about last question? Yes. Uh, my name's Catherine Hiller. I'm a novelist. Thank you for discussing the electronic media. That was really very interesting. But I have a question about books. And my question is this. Why aren't more novels published and reviewed as trade paperback originals? Why must the first step be the more expensive hardcover? In Europe, the vast majority of books come out first in paper, which I, as a reader, prefer. Why can't it happen here? It does. Not the vast majority but of not them. Enough. First published, I'm talking about. It shouldn't have to be a bestseller or do terribly well to come out in paper. That should be the first step. The second step, if it looks like it's going to last, should be the hardcover. Um, who wants to answer that? Anne. Why um, if I understand what you're saying, you're, you're asking why, if trade paperback is such a saleable and accessible format, are so many books published hardcover than, than paperback? Um, originally, I, I took your question to mean why are pa trade paperbacks not well reviewed? And I'm going to, that's not your question. It's the second. Um, I th well, there's, they are somewhat related in that we, we know that reviewers tend to focus um, much to the exclusion of trade paperbacks on hardcovers. And there's a feeling often that we do need the, the hardcover life of the book for the reviews, um, for library and institutional sale, which is nothing to overlook. Um, but we do also publish some books in trade paperback original format where appropriate. Um, I think it's, it's the way our I industry is structured at the moment. And I think that there are sales and promotional opportunities attached to hardcovers uh, perhaps unfortunately, that, that are not attached to paperbacks. I was um, very politely corrected a moment ago, saying there's more time if there are more questions, and I gather there are more questions. That doesn't mean that those of you who want to leave uh, shouldn't leave now if there's some, if you have to go to Four Seasons or someplace like that. <laughs> but but uh, I, I didn't know that there, was a, there were other questions. So let's hear from the other questions, uh, questioners. If there are any, yeah. Okay. He already asked a question. Second question. Hi. A second question. My yes. name is Richard Rothman, and I'm an unpublished author. And I, uh, I've written six books, and I've been told explicitly in rejection letters, which I had with me, <laughs> that that I can't get published because I don't fit a profile. I don't, see, I write serious nonfiction. I don't have a PhD. I don't have an affiliation. 
and, and I haven't been published before. And, p and magazines want you to have a PhD and have an affiliation. And about the Beacon Press, there's an editor there named Vance Hall who rejected my third book and my fourth book. But my fourth book, she said she remembered my third book. However, I don't have a reputation. And Beacon Press will not publish anybody with a reputation. When I called her about my fifth and sixth book, she said, I can't sell it to the marketing department of Beacon Press. And, uh, and so what these companies are telling me is, because I don't have a PhD, I shouldn't even bother submitting my books. And, and just as a corollary to that, I just want to state that in addition to my, from my uh, small view, uh, vantage point of viewing the literary marketplace as being a closed marketplace, in other words, because I don't fit a predetermined profile, I can't get published. The other thing is the level of controversy. For example, my third book, is on the protests that occurred when The Last Temptation of Christ was released, that Martin Scorsese movie in the summer of 88. And it's about the ideas the Christian fundamentalists were defending and the assumptions they were using to defend those ideas. And when I was approaching publishers about that in uh, February and March of 89, they were telling me um, that they were afraid to have protests about the book, about the protest, about the movie. And, and, and so they were afraid, and, and, and Shotgun Books told me how can we publish a book on anti-Semitism? Did, did you bring your manuscripts? <laughs> bring your no, manuscripts. That, no, that's not Robert the point. Wyatt wants all those manuscripts. <laughs> so just no, get no, his address before I'm, you I'm leave tonight. Let me understand my question about the profile, though. Okay. You know, I mean, I, 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 that's what they're, they're telling me. They're telling all right, me. we'll help you after the show. No, no. Robert Wyatt personally will help you. No, well, <laughs> seriously. No, but it's okay. a situation I, all of us. I, I once wrote a piece for the New York Times Book Review about seven or eight months ago. It's about where are the Italian-American writers? You know, I received 73 manuscripts in the first week from people saying, I am the Italian-American writer, I'm the novelist. And I get still to this day manuscripts from all over the United States and other places as well, some of them even in English, from Italian-American writers saying, this is it, now what do you do with it? So I open my big mouth or the Times allowed it to be open and I have these manuscripts, I don't want to do with them. I, I mean, my wife won't touch them uh, and um, I don't know, but um, I'm sure that, that it's no comfort to you to know that you're not alone, but there are other writers who were in your situation, many of them known. I, um, I don't know the, the history of that, that uh, successful and, and, and vilified author of, uh, of Bridges of Madison County. I don't know the history of him, but I do know something that I, 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 I'm amazed at the anger that the anger I, I, I've, um, I've been aware of in the book publishing industry over the success of that book. Quite a part that, that it, it, isn't, it isn't the novel of our time or it isn't maybe a novel of even a week of our time. But, but I don't understand though in the industry that is looking to sell and looking to, to look for examples of books that do not have the great marketing genius of major publishing houses to launch them into success. And here's a book that that for, for whatever reason, I guess it's the American public you must blame, took, took this book to its heart. It made a big bestseller. No thanks to book publishing, as far as I know. And yet the aftermath of the anger toward its success is something that I still don't understand. But maybe... Oh, intentionally, I'm sure, by Pamela Pierce. No. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't want to sound like a, a talk show host like Howard Stern snaps you off, but I think it's not working. But maybe, um, maybe we'll have another more. We run out of questions. Oh, there's one. Another publisher looking for a manuscript. 
My name's, my name's Joshua Shapiro. I have a question for the publishers and the panel. Why would a publisher contract for a book, whether big seller, small seller, mid-list, whatever, and not do a P&L on the book on how successful it is and when they, prior to signing the contract, and have adequate money to promote it so that there are no surprises when the book is finally released and that there is adequate money for whatever niche, whether it's Japanese restaurants, black beauty salons, or whatever, so that there's a whole marketing plan put in place a priority. Is that Robert? I think there's a big difference between doing a P&L, and given, given the P&Ls we heard from Harry Evans, I'm kind of glad we don't do P&Ls, and you should be glad we don't too. Um, I think there's a big difference between doing a rigid kind of P&L, as, as the other question implied, and doing a marketing plan for a book and having some sense of what you're going to sell. But let's face it, we're all looking into a crystal ball, and none of us has any idea when we sign up a book how many copies we're going to sell. So we have some sense, some vague sense, and we certainly do marketing plans, but that's very different. Any other questions? Yes. Yes, right here. Yeah. Pamela in the third row. My name is Elizabeth Benedict. I'm a novelist. Um, and as I, I, some of you have addressed this in certain ways about what are we going to do, but one of the issues that you haven't addressed directly is conglomerates and companies like Bertelsmann and QVC and Viacom owning book, com book companies and what effect that has on authors who and, and, ed and editors too, but particularly on authors um, since I'm one. I could, uh, as an author, I could almost answer that as well as the others, but I'd like to hear from the others as well. When I was, um, in 1960, I was on the New York Times, and I had the assignment of covering publishing, an assignment I hated, and I didn't do it for more than three weeks. But one of the stories that I came upon was the purchase by Random House of Knopf. And I wrote this story, it was a big front page story, the only, maybe one of the few front page stories I ever had. And I remember the, in the aftermath of that acquisition by Random House, Bennett Cerf was the big publisher then and he acquired Alfred Knopf himself. Um, and I remember the, the, the fear within the industry, oh, this is the end of a great, great publisher, poor Alfred, it's the end of him. Uh, no more uh, Thomas Mann type of novels, all those great European imports that he was so distinguished at publishing. Well, it didn't work out. I mean, Knopf is still thriving, and Random House is doing well, and they're all under these conglomerates. It's Gulf and Western or Bertelsmann. Uh, my, my wife is published, uh, uh, is owned by the Germans. You know, here she is. And she's publishing uh, some very, very good writers that the, the Germans wouldn't want even to do with. I guess, but she gets away with it. Uh, I don't know that let conglomerates me, are this odor. Let, oh, oh. let, let me speak to that. Okay. okay. Uh, on the other hand, we do hear of, of a lot of disappointment right now out there. It's not just people who can't sell their books, but 
um, I've talked to editors who've told me that uh, because things seem to be more market-driven now in acquisitions, uh, they can't sell the books. They used to sell to the house based on uh, the pure quality of the book. Uh, one editor told me recently she couldn't sell any more quiet books. And she was a children's book editor, and she and I agreed that Wind in the Willows was a quiet book, and mm -hmm. Goodnight Moon was a quiet book, and that it's very likely now, unless it was Barney with a TV tie-in, you know, that, or some such color of that, that it would be hard for her. We've also heard about um, um, uh, people who have been nominated for major awards whose books are um, being put out of print just because they didn't sell enough copies. And uh, I, I know a Penn Faulkner Award winner who cannot sell his fourth novel because the numbers were low. And he, it wasn't just a joke about Joe Midlist. It's really a very dedicated, brilliant writer who can't sell his fourth novel. So I think that um, even if it is a lot uh, of it is anecdotal at this point, uh, there is a, a, a depressed atmosphere out there. And we're also hearing about lists being um, uh, shrunk all the time through these growing. Yeah. And those were two of my books that came that were in print several months before a new novel came out. And Bantam cut both of them several months before a new novel came out and told my agent that front list doesn't sell back list. And they cut a third of their authors, and I assume it's the bottom third, but that's a lot of people to put out of work. And things may be great for your wife, but for a lot of other people and, and for my next book, when that came out, none of the other companies' imprints in Bantam, Doubleday, or Dell would look at my book because Bantam had taken the other books out of print. I don't think oh. any, I don't think most of us can really defend the conglomerates. I think they'd be stupid. That's why why I left it. They're filled with with terrified people. Everybody is scared. Well, I mean, I, the bosses are scared. We have to report to some. Everybody reports to somebody. Alberto reports to somebody. Cy reports to somebody. Yeah. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Who? He's banker. I, I think. That well, eventually he reports to the audience for the for the stuffy pedals, which, which is what we all do eventually. Well, I think this is the reason we, uh, from what I understood, that one reason this uh, panel was uh, put together today was because of the, the way things are. I read recently that seven major houses have 80% of the best sellers, and um, they're just shrinking the number of places that we can uh, send our books to. But I don't know that there's an answer to this problem that's... <laughs> you know, something we could just deliver in a package today. Yeah, but for authors, it isn't necessarily, I don't want to defend, my wife doesn't need my defending, you know that. But I want to say that, that large isn't necessarily bad, because sometimes small is bad for writers too. Sometimes the small publishing companies, I've been with both. And uh, I, I just, I mean, I had the best experience I ever had in my life as a writer was with a company that went under. World Publishing, those of you in the room that know World Publishing, it, it was the best publishing house I ever knew. I had published three books there. And I never found, I knew better editors, better marketing people, better receptionists, better bosses, the publishers. The Times Mirror Company owned World. And I, I had the happiest relationship I ever had and went out of business. And I don't like to think that it's my, all my fault, but it, <laughs> it sure, I miss them. I miss them. And, and, uh, 
and I think other people miss World. Some good people in, in, in publishing today came out of World. Uh, is there any other? Excuse me. Oh, oh, quite, yeah, and just, there, there's a question, there's a microphone. Uh, Ellen Levine. Um, the conglomerates are having an impact. We don't know. We don't even know what what this this the, all the ramifications are of the impact on our lives as writers. Do you think? And I, I don't. I I don't have any uh, any conclusion on this now. But of six big companies that I can think of, four are foreign owned. Um, do you think that that makes a difference for us as writers? I think that makes less of a difference than just the overall size. I think we've seen over and again in American business how hard it is to continue to spark creativity and to let people be creative in, in large corporate environments. Look at IBM, look at General Motors. There are lots of examples in other industries, and so I suspect we're seeing that same kind of rigid bureau bureaucratization <laughs> taking place, and I don't think it matters who the owner is. And I think some editors are exempt from it, because they're stars and they've done a wonderful job, but I think probably many, many editors are, are really feeling the pinch. All right. Yes. Let's make this the last question. Yes, I think in the in the. Oh, it isn't. Oh, comment. All right. Sixties. Uh, and identify yourself. Henrietta Houston. In the 60s, Henrietta Houston? You, well, uh, that's the name I use on the phone because people don't <laughs> recognize. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the 60s, the first merger that we were aware of as editors was well, the Murchison Million from Texas Oil came and Kroll Collier McMillian was created. And at that time, the editors, because their work had changed so much for Crowell, Collier, Macmillan, it was books, books, books every week. There was a uh, tale going around among the editors. A man imported sardines from Europe and put them in his cellar. And one day his wife was, had guests and she didn't have enough food for them, so she went to the cellar and she took out those sardines, and everybody at her party got sick. So she said to her husband, what, what was the matter with the sardines that everybody got sick? And he said, oh, those sardines are not for eating, they're for selling. And so it is with Krell Collier Macmillan books. Now, editors must have had their chores greatly toughened to for that joke to go around in the Thank 60s. You. Thank you. I would like to, um, <coughs> I would like, thank you. I'd like to conclude the evening with not only thanks to the panelists, but thanks to Penn <coughs> and, to the <coughs> and to the program committee that uh, tonight when I arrived here, I was astonished at the crowd. And I was coming up the escalator and I met some people shaking their heads and leaving. I said, I can't get in, can't get in. I thought, oh my God. You can't get into a seminar about book publishing? <laughs> Amazing. I mean, here we are. I mean, it's not that we had John Voigt here tonight, that, that uh, vilified figure mentioned before. But the fact that we can have such a room as this earlier this evening, so crowded that I'm sure almost half the size of this seated audience was denied entry because of the space limitations. 
which is really says something about the health of the book industry or the, or, or, or the, or the value that we attach to books. Is this true? And so, uh, excuse me? Anyway, uh, I want to say thanks to Penn for this wonderful opportunity. And thanks for your, your attention. And I'm sorry so many could not get in tonight. Thank you.